Though it's possible this opinion will shift after Valar Reredus does A Dance with Dragons, to date, my experience has been that A Feast for Crows is the one book of the four before Dance that the initial opinions change the most after reread. And I think that is going to be true after A Dance with Dragons as well. I just wanted to throw that caveat in there. It was something I believed about Feast before we even started Valar Reredus, and going through this has only reinforced that opinion. And a lot of you out there are the reason why. You've said the same thing. Listeners, viewers, you've said that, boy, my opinion changed on Feast after rereading. Some of you, that's a recent thing. Some of you read your second read of Feast was a long time ago, as long as the year it came out or perhaps, you know, halfway through the TV show, anytime. There's all, all types of people exist in this fandom in terms of where they read Feast and other things. And this impact has been greatly increased by the TV show. So that's one thing that has changed, even though the book has been out for almost 15 years or roughly 15 years, because of all the books that had plot lines that didn't make it onto the screen or did, but in greatly reduced version. This book is perhaps the one that still has the most interesting of designations. Unknown, meaning unspoiled by the show. In this case, I'm neither praising nor criticizing the show. It's just a simple truth. There's a lot left that's mostly or completely unspoiled in general. But a huge slice of that remaining mystery pie belongs to the crows for their feast. So I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredus for A Feast for Crows. The wrap-up with us are our regular end-of-book review, seven-pointed, I mean, all-star team... Starting with <laughs> Lady Gwyn of Radio Westeros. How you doing, Lady Gwyn? Doing okay. Good to be awesome. here. Yeah. So you guys had a stream yesterday with one of our other guests here, Joe Buckley. So, hey, Joe, how you doing? Hello. Apologies, you can't see me in the ghost today. <laughs> so, yeah, you guys did a stream on Stoneheart yesterday. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I-, I was in the chat for that listening. Yeah. So you guys are, are real warmed up on, on at least one particular subtopic, but we've got a lot of topics to cover today. And uh, Nina is here as well. Nina from goodqueenalley at tumblr.com. How are you doing, I'm Nina? Doing, doing good. Doing good. Allergies notwithstanding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have a lot of fun stuff for you today. We're covering a variety of topics, of course. We're going to do this a little differently In the first three review episodes, we really followed a pattern of going through each POV structure-wise. But we're not going to really do that this time. Partly that's because of the difference in the way we approach this material because so much of it is mysterious. When we're going through the arcs in the Clash of Kings, for example, you can easily say, well, this is where this part ends. This is where this part ends. Obviously, there's stories beyond that. But even in the case of, say, Arya or... Catelyn, there's a defend, there's sort of a defined start and end point for what's happening in Feast and the end of Storm. It's really like a reset. So that is why we're going to cover things a little differently. We're going to talk more about themes and do a lot of predictions. So first off, though, a couple of shout outs to our supporters here. We've got Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword. And of course, we have our History of Westeros Dragon Riders. That includes Telenius the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, Red Dragon with Scales, Horns, and Talons of Midnight Black, and Hunter of House Black Cloud, the Storm Runner, King of the Sky, Rider of Heranicon, the Windworm, a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum silver, horns, claws, and fangs of pure white, with eyes the color of diamonds of fire. I think I said claws instead of claws there, but eh, I think you got it. 
All right. You, we also have another way to support if you want to keep things simple. A little bit simpler than Patreon is Anchor Support. You can find the links in the description. So I'm going to start by asking each of my awesome guests what their general feast opinion was, if they felt differently on this particular reread, if anything changed. Feast, for me, it's simply the best book in terms of character development and exploring so many different themes and philosophical issues that are set up in the previous three books. It is absolutely no accident that my favorite characters are all Feast point of views, since in my opinion, it's the most intensely personal book of the series to date. That that is something that just gets better. An opinion that just gets more strongly held each time I reread it. Intensely personal. That's a great way to put it. I like that. I might steal <laughs> <Go> that. <for> <laughs> but no, and no one will know because it, this was all under wraps. <laughs> uh, Joe, I guess you're in green here. We have we each have our own color within our documents. <laughs> yeah, I can't really disagree with anything that had been said. I remember when we were doing Storm, uh, she listed uh, Feast as her favorite, and it was hard mm-hmm. to disagree. Then it's even harder to disagree now. It's just, uh, it's kind of a magnificent outlier to me. I get the impression, reading it the first time and now, that George is really able to just stretch his wings a bit and flex out when he wasn't as married to the main plot of the series as in terms of progression, as much as he normally is. There's still key moments, but this is definitely him taking the chance that he can to um, just use some of his best language. And in the reading, he really just kind of lets himself go with more poetic moments and letting his messages come through stronger than ever, whether that's anti-war or anti-revenge or whatever. It's completely unique amongst the five, I think. And it really, it really is a cut apart. It makes it harder to compare, but also much easier to appreciate. It's just different. It's, it's an interesting book for me. I kind of put it as feast the sum of its parts is more than the whole. And and here's what I mean by that. So Feast as a whole book doesn't work in the same way that say Storm or Clash or Game of Thrones works because it's not telling the whole plot story. Like you can't understand the whole plot if you're not talking about Feast and Dance at the same time because they're talking about, you know, the entire plot of the book. But, and I want to be really clear, Feast's arcs are so good. They are so strong. There is not a bad arc in that book that this is why I say it's almost the sum of its parts is is more than the whole. It has such strong, strong, strong character arcs, even though it's only telling half of the plot story. Yeah, that's a great way to put it because the, that dichotomy of, of it's more focused on characters, like Joe said. And as uh, Lady Gwynne said, it's intensely personal. And as you said, the plot is less of the focus. The character is more of the focus. And that's a great thing. Like that's, we love the characters. These characters are so well made. This world is living and breathing. And that is what we want more of. And quite frankly, if I compare it to Game of Thrones, the plot required Ned's internal monologue to be stilted in certain ways to not reveal things. And that perhaps prevented us from getting... Not that Ned's internal monologue wasn't fantastic. Of course, it's great. But he had to... I don't want to use the word cheat, but he had to avoid topics in, for Ned to think about. And that's just... There's really not as much of that uh, or at all, uh, potentially, in, with these characters. So you get to really explore their feelings without these uh, barriers, uh, plot barriers in place. So that is a... I think that's a, a good way to put it because it's, it, it's a plot versus character uh, dichotomy there. 
So real quickly, 10 Cersei chapters, 8 Brienne chapters, 7 Jamie, 5 Sam, Sansa and Arya 3, Arian and Victorian and Aaron 2, Ario, Hotop, Pate, Aris, and Asha 1. 25 of 45 chapters are Jamie, Cersei, Brienne. So that's well over half. And then we have five Greyjoy, six Stark, and four Dorne chapters. Now, with that in mind, all of those plot lines, Greyjoy, Stark, and Dorne, are all fairly prominent in and out of the Cersei chapters at the Capitol. And of course, they discuss what's happening all over the realm. Another sort of recurring pattern is that the King's Landing POV, if there's a main King's Landing POV, is pretty much always the longest one. That That pattern will be broken next book, though. Fire and Blood in mind, with the show in mind, with just new opinions, with the time changing, you know, anything, maybe your opinions have changed on certain things. Maybe you prefer certain things. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, Let's go in Um, the opposite order this time. Let's start with you, Nina. What is your, who stood out for you this time? In a strange way, he's sort of the central protagonist of this for Girls. He gets gets the most time. Yeah, isn't that right? (laughs) Sort of reflects back on her or centers on her. So he is sort of the, the central protagonist. You know, this is a very interestingly complex book, and I'm glad that we get the Cersei POV now rather than, say, in A Game of Thrones or in A Storm of Swords or something like that, because this is the book where Cersei finally has everything that she wants, but we are in her head as she is constantly fighting this terror. And it's a real terror that she has been fighting for the past 20 years. And to me, I almost... I feel a slight modicum of sympathy for Cersei. Not ignoring that she does a lot of horrible things in this book, let's be clear. But it's real. This is not a baseless paranoia. (laughs) She really knows that she is going to be murdered and she's going to see her kids die. She's desperate to avoid that, but she can't. And that is the one thing that she should legitimately be terrified of. And that, you're right, that's terrifying. So it is, it's true. There is some sympathy for her there. And I think also with her feelings for her children, even though she's not a very good mother, I Joe, would say Brienne again. However many times I read this, I think it will always be <laughs> Brienne, Brienne, Fred, Brienne. Uh, she's just kind of the point of the book to me. She's just embraced all the themes, all the things we're supposed to be seeing that we don't normally get to see is uh, is with Brienne. And it's just the most beautiful arc, especially the further it goes on. It just manages to get better and better and better somehow. And those last kind of three or four uh, are really, for me, just top of the series i don't think they can be beaten but i've also mentioned the second half jamie jamie's very much a tale of two arcs in this one in the city and one back out on the road and the second one is just very enjoyable for him um this time around took a little bit more notice of ariane and probably even sam as well who's you don't think of as getting a lot done in this book he kind of just travels down and not a lot actually happens but just his arc of kind of being the same old sam at the beginning and finding kind of stronger Sam on the way, even though this is the much safer trip compared to his storm journey. But this is the one that actually uh, changes him more, I'd say. That's well said, yeah. And as well, I'd add to that, you know, Ariane looked a bit different to me as well. I didn't pick her for my list of ones that stood out the most, but I do, but she was close because there is a lot of history in her chapters and just more, we're, we're all rethink, we're constantly on the lookout for where this Dornish plot is going. It's going to be Jamie, Cersei, Brienne, always. Uh, Jamie for his improvement arc. Uh, just love being in his head while he's traveling around the Riverlands and, and even previous to that when he's still in King's Landing. Brienne for her, the purity of her soul 
both of them for the window that they give us into the devastation of Riverlands and Cersei for the window that she gives us into the politics of King's Landing, which she's horrible at, but still, <laughs> uh, I, I love it. I, I love to read her chapters. They make me laugh. Um, and and yeah, as, as bad as she is, I like the feeling of, you know, having that little teeny, teeny bit of empathy for her, like you mentioned, Nina. But still, mostly she just makes me laugh. She's so awful. <laughs> I, I definitely wrote down Cersei just because of her overwhelming presence, and the the I, I tried to refer to her sometimes as like a fire hose POV because sometimes you there's just so much going on. Like someone brings up something important, and she it, it makes her think of something else, and she thinks about that thing, and so you have two different topics to consider right there because it's the thing that the, the important thing that Kyburn is bringing to her attention. Or someone else, and then the thing that makes her mind was like, "Oh yeah, Estermont. Yeah, I went there once. That's where I slept. With, <laughs> that's where I slept with Jamie, and we made Joffrey." And she's, he's like, "No, Estermont's important now because of the Dornish and the Dun." He's, she's like, "Yeah, indestructible." <laughs> but I also, of course, am going to continue to stand my man, Victorian, the Hamster Philosopher. That's my newest term for him. Before I called him like the thick philosopher, but now it's the hamster philosopher because he runs on that wheel. It doesn't go anywhere. He's spinning that wheel. He's thinking about all these different things. He's like, well, how do the gods work? How does this work? How does that work? He never figures anything out, but he thinks about them. And that raises important questions for the reader. And I love that. <laughs> and I, I have high hopes for him, not just... I kind of think he's just going to die pretty quickly over in Slaver's Bay, but I have hopes that he doesn't... And he becomes like Victor, uh, Daenerys's champion or something crazy like that. Like, I fight for Daenerys. She's not going to marry me, but I'm going to fight for her. So, you know, <laughs> he's like, with that burned arm, come on, he's cool. Uh, and Arya <laughs> stood out to me more this time, um, mm -hmm. mostly because I had this new idea, this new theory that I'm now calling Doom of the Faceless Men. So even if that doesn't happen, even if that theory is completely off, it was really fun to have and think about and, and consider. And that was a completely new experience. So that alone has some value. Now let's, let's switch gears to a similar related topic, but one that's a little more theoretical. Which characters do we think stand out as the most unpredictable? Like where it's the hardest to see their arc, maybe because of uh, confusion from the TV show or lack of TV show. Either way, that could work out. Uh, Fire and Blood may have added or obscured other details, or perhaps you just think the whole thing is mysterious. Uh, for me, the main thing, well, you know how much I like looking at chapter frequencies and where George decides to put who and whatever, all that kind of nerdy stuff. I go far too far down that well. But um, what stuck out to me most was structure-wise, just how much George actually laid out the Ironborn and Dornish uh, storylines as like complete mirrors to each other. Mm. I think, you, like at a glance, if I asked you, you'd probably say, yeah, they're similar. But when you look at it, it, actually almost dead parallel from beginning to end in terms of where the chapters go, how many you get, where you get them, and in the storylines as well in terms of they both start with hearing uh, bad news about Balon and Oberyn and the kind of reaction to that. Then they get to making kings slash queens, and then they end with, okay, well, we need dragons, and we're going to go off and get them. And that obviously <laughs> continues on to dance. So that just the yeah, the sheer mirroring of it is, considering they're both new, and George's obviously done this on purpose, is, is really interesting to me. Other than that, it's just kind of the little things that you pick up as you go, like Jamie's little attempts at being vulnerable again, how well he gets on being out on the road in a camp, and 
uh, just right at the end there, I forgot really how he's not only trying to take on being Lord Commander and doing right by Tom and a bit and everything like that. He he is actually wanting to take some responsibility for the larger small uh, small folk. When the snow starts falling, he's realizing, oh, actually, it's me. I have to feed everyone. I've got to actually <laughs> take care of this because if it's not me, it's Cersei, and that's not going to work, is it? So it's going to be me. So like that. Um, that hope he gets, and I'm expecting that's just going to be derailed and he's not going to have any time for that at all, but it's nice that he's got that thing to do that. Yeah, because he's like, he wants to, he was upset by Jenna's characterization that Tyrion's more like Tywin. So, but now, and he tried to be like Tywin just after that, and as I think yeah. all of us agreed, he didn't really, he more like was a Tywin facsimile, but not really like Tywin. He was, he had like the, the trappings of Tywin, but in, internally, no. But actually having this job of of caring for uh, being in charge like this, that is like Tywin. Um, it, maybe not personality-wise, but responsibility-wise. And that is a better way to emulate Tywin. <laughs> so do, do the jobs he did, but do them better, not be like him. Have his authority and wield it better, uh, or a lot better, not have his personality and, and, and his life arc. So for me, and this is going to sound really weird, but uh, I, I believe it. Ariel Hota is the one that I have genuinely no idea where yeah. that story is going. I feel like with every other piece uh, POV, I have a general idea of, of where the story is going. I could be completely off base, yeah. but I feel like I have a general idea of like, okay, these are going to be the basic story beats. Ariel Hota, I think we will go to Starfall. I think we will maybe meet Wyla. I think we will learn some information that we need to know about John and the Tower of Joy. But other than that, does Darkstar try to get Dawn? Does he try to kidnap or marry Illyria? Does he try to, you know, pull a Samwell Dane and go to Old Town? But, but I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a, there I are a lot of options where does, there. Does he kill him? Does Ariel go back to Doran? Does Ariel die? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. So uh, I have no idea where Ariel Hota is going. <laughs> so that's my big question mark of the Winds of Winter. Uh, and Lady Gwen, what about you? So <laughs> this is weird, um, but you know I've been really and really uh, involved with Cersei lately because I'm writing about her now. Um, so Cersei, uh, even though she's really predictable in most ways, you know Tyrion calls her utterly predictable, and I tend to agree with him. But she's just so bonkers. Like I, sometimes when I think about the things that she'll do going forward. I just think kind of the sky's the limit. So in that sense, <laughs> she kind of is unpredictable in the way that absolutely insane people tend to be. So <laughs> other than that, I think in terms of just simply this book on its own, if I was just reading this book and thinking, geez, who would I kind of not know or not be able to predict what's going to happen next? It's Ariane. She's taking Feast as its own little piece. If I, if you went back to when I first read Feast for Crows, she was probably the one that I found the most unpredictable. Good <laughs> answers. Yeah. So it sounds like a, a strong tendency to, to mention Dorn and Dorn related plots there. Basically, all mm-hmm. three all mentioned that in one way or another. And for me, I'll throw in uh, maybe most unpredictable. Um, yeah, that is tough. I, I I could agree with y'all, but just for just to throw out something different, I'll say that I have a real hard time figuring out what's going to happen with Sam specifically. I can tell some of the plots around him. I have what I think are solid predictions, but him specifically, I'm not sure. And it's real tricky. One of the things that makes him so tricky is that of all the characters, he has a finger 
in the most plots. Maybe with Cersei as an exception because she's part of so much being in the capital. But Sam is part of so many of the magical plot lines indirectly or directly. And he's perhaps the most connected to the two main overarching supernatural plots, which are, you know, the fire and ice, meaning the, the dragons and the White Walkers. And he's got Aemon's stuff that he's just learned and he's about to hear all these other things and presumably the dragons will be coming to, to town soon. Maybe not Old Town, but to Westeros. And he's, of course, got all this knowledge about Northern stuff. So that makes it really hard to see like what, how George is going to balance that and what he's going to do because there's so many directions he can take Sam's story uh, as, an, as an important observer and, and let alone what he's going to do and what's going to happen to Gilly at Horn Hill and things like that. So I'm very curious. And Jake and Pate, all that. So much. <laughs> so how about this next question here? Something that you didn't notice before, something besides a character thing or maybe a plot line that you s- stood out to you more this time through? This is a really little thing, but I think that it speaks to a major theme of A Feast for Crows. Um, I... Everyone is familiar with, you know, Rhaegar's changes will be made, you know, that he said to Jamie right before the Trident. I hadn't really realized or remembered uh, prior to this reread that this is actually the book that Jamie remembers that happening in. This is the book where he remembers Rhaegar saying that. And the reason that I noticed it and the reason that I really like that it comes in Feast is because Feast is a book that is all about the false peace. And Dances is about it too, but certainly with, with Feast, this idea gets introduced, is the, the false peace is the peace you can't live with. The peace that is no peace, the peace that is built on bloodshed and violence and completely unjust crimes. So this is what this is what Jamie is dealing with in the Riverlands. This is what Asha's Kingsmoot pitch is based on. This is what it had the heart of Doran's conflict in Dorne. Can you live with a peace that is built on this completely unjust basis. And I like that it starts with this memory of Rhaegar, because of course, Rhaegar's plan is, yeah, I'm going to go to the Trident. I'm going to take up arms for my insane father. I'm going to kill Robert in a very justified rebellion. And then we'll talk peace. And then we'll talk terms. And it's, <laughs> no, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you, can't, you, can't make a, you can't make this sort of false peace. So I just, I really like the that little historical anecdote comes in to set up this major theme throughout the whole book. That's really well said. Yeah, that's very mm-hmm. true. It's the changes in uh, thinking about the diverse... No justice, no peace, I suppose, is a simple, simplified version of that. And it's so very true. You're right. And it really is reflected in, a, in almost every plot line, if not every plot line. Yeah, maybe just every plot line. Um, Lady Gwen, how about you? Well, I'm going to go all the way back to the prologue chapter Mm. for this one. Um, Pate's chapter, I realized, you know, reading this this time around, introduces this theme of convergence, which is a major theme of Feast of Dance. From a meta perspective, it's the largest issue George encountered with the mechanics of the story while writing these two novels. Moving towards the climax of the series, it's very important obviously, that far-flung characters and settings begin to come together. And it all starts here in Feast. This is the contract where the contraction begins. Uh, one example actually is the very first word of the novel. It opens with the word dragons, after which, you know, we, we hear about news of dragons. And then throughout Feast for Crows, news of dragons uh, keeps coming up again how this news is spreading. You hear, see it in numerous point of views. 
all of this is converging towards that point, which has yet to come, but inevitably will. Janair is coming to Westeros with her dragons. And it's just one example of those kind of converging threads as we start to see things, you know, that inevitably are going to link up in the upcoming story. Right on. Well said. So let's also talk about um, something that's things that stand out about why Feast is different. We have, for example, I think that one thing that's interesting to me is that it has the a theme in Clash of Kings was the rise of the supernatural. That there's a lot more of that uh, detail and delving in Clash of Kings than there is in the Game of Thrones. But Feast has this the feel of Game of Thrones in that it's a has a lot of setup for later things. And it also has the rough length of a Game of Thrones. But unlike all the other books, except maybe A Dance with Dragons, which leans into this pattern a bit, but we're not there yet. So length of chapters changed dramatically. Narrative shift, as we've already sort of somewhat covered, uh, more character-focused. And of course, the, the splitting of the books is a big change in the narrative focus as well from a structural point of view. And then we have things like the change of of POV names, things like that. Let's get one one or two takes from each of y'all on any or all of those subtopics relating to why Feast is different. From the meta point of view, I loved this. It's the beginning of stuff we don't have an ending to yet. It's a whole new era where, you know, you got the first three books where things kind of conclude uh, for a lot of people or conclude ready for the next chapter, I guess. Um, and Feast is just very different feeling in that way. Yeah. The fact that there's so much more internal development, which mm. you kind of mentioned when you when you talk about narrative shift, that's that's what is so much more getting inside characters' heads in Feast. A lot less kind of actiony stuff, but yeah. I love that interior stuff. And uh, you know, I wonder if this is George simply perfecting his relationship to his characters, or is this really by intent and design that 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 was his what he wanted out of this book. I haven't really figured that out yet, but uh, either way, it's it's a great effect. That's a good side point there about the like the battles. There's set up for battles, mm-hmm. a couple in particular, but there's only a few like fights. We see Victorian fight on the in the shields. That's probably the biggest fight in the whole in the whole book. We've got, <laughs> right. you know, Brienne fights some brave companions and and then more brave companions and then what else is there? There's very little actual fighting, which is, I mean, there's plenty of violence, obviously. There's Kyburn's tortures and uh, some awful things like that. But yeah, that's really, it's really interesting in that sense. Um, more character focus, less, less war, less battle. I think I made the point in our wrap-up on our episode 12 that something along the lines of the fact that most of the ends of the books are one big reveal, um, whereas yeah. the fe- feast is a lot of small reveals and small setups mm-hmm. so, uh, or medium, small, medium. Anyway, and Nina, what about you? What did you think here? Well, the one thing, and this has always struck me as very interesting about feast, is that feast is a, is a kind of odd, odd middle child of the books in that it's <laughs> it's sort of it's not only responding to something that didn't happen, which is you know the five year gap was planned, but that obviously didn't come to fruition. Mm, right on. This is a great uh, summary written by patron Paul Barry that I think reflects a lot of people's thoughts on the reread. Similar-ish thoughts were given to us by other regular commenters like Tree Girl and Archmaester Rennie, two, two of whom who are... Those are two who have read the books when it, read it when it came out and have had a nice long time to reconsider it like myself and, and a lot of us. 
Paul Berry says, I have enjoyed all the rereads, but this was my favorite. Gonna miss it. One thing I really didn't expect was all the Duncan Egg parallels. I remembered the shield on Tarth and the symbolism of not really a knight, but more knightly than anyone. But I was blown away by some others. Brienne's chapters gave us the broken man monologue, but the sworn sword shows us the recruiting of those small folk fighters and really the same debate. Foes charge them in the same way, trying to vanquish them quickly, underestimating their prowess. There are many times you could imagine them saying each other's lines. Dunk could certainly say no chance, no choice many times. At the whispers, I could imagine Brienne saying, I'm better with a real sword. Hell, they even scratch insect bites on their necks the same. I didn't even notice that insect bite when that's really good. <laughs> well, I'm very glad that Paul mentioned the sworn, the sworn sword because George wrote those in parallel. I mean, very, very close. The sworn sword, 2003, Feast for Crows in 2005. He was admittedly including hints about Dunk's descendant within the Feast for Crows. So the sheer number of large and small ways that he ended up doing that is simply stunning to me. And rereading, you know, I feel like you notice something every time, some a different thing, like like the insect bites. I mean, <laughs> there's it just feels like it's a bottomless well once you really start trying to pick it apart. And uh, yeah. it's just, uh, yeah, yet another thing that I love about Feast for Crows. It's so good in that way. You're right there. When you read something for this Xth time, when you've read it enough times and you still find new things, that does really give you that sense that like, oh, if I missed that, then what else did I miss? And there's that bottomless <laughs> well feeling you're talking about. That's really, that's a great way to put it. Bottomless yeah. well, yeah. Because it keeps mm -hmm. on giving. It is. <laughs> and you don't and you don't really get a sense that it will stop. <laughs> Nina, what about you? Well, you know, I definitely I definitely think that this this feels like the book where he decided to make Brienne Dunk's possible great granddaughter. And I don't mean possible in the sense that, you know, we don't know that they're related. They very clearly are, but in the sense that I don't know how many generations, but I just kind of had canon that it's sort of right. great granddaughter. But no, absolutely. You know, even though I've brought up in the past where like, there's a moment during the tourney of Bitter Bridge that feels extremely similar to um, a moment in the Hedge Knight in terms of their fighting style. So, uh, you know, I can definitely see the parallels, but this feels like the book where George R. R. Martin decided, yeah, this is the character that I'm going to make the bloodline descendant of Doug because there's so much focus in Brand's storyline on true knighthood and can you be a true knight if you're never given sort of the the formal credentials of knighthood which spoiler yes so <laughs> <laughs> um and, and you know it's just so nice to kind of really dig into those parallels both on a well i don't know if that's the word i want to use and a thematic level <laughs> okay yeah 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 and that's another thing we should mention um, it probably would have come up eventually if we hadn't but just this uh, paul has raised it indirectly the the idea of there's so many parallels there's lots of parallels george loves to do that but i think he's uh, more adept at it than he was when he first started the, the books. I mean, he's obviously a really skilled writer and he was a really skilled writer before writing the series, but he's, he hadn't written anything like this before it. So he gained new experience and knowledge and, and does things differently. Uh, just as our, as analysts and, and fans, we have learned over time how to interpret his material differently. And that is, it's all part of that same process, I think. Looks like Joe is back. All right, good timing. When you asked me to come on this, I said to myself, I'm going to mess it up three ways, no more, no less. <laughs> so I've done my camera. I've answered a question that you didn't ask me. And now I've uh, had a power cut. So any more and you can tell me off, but that's fine. <laughs> okay. So I think I'm in the right place. Well, I know I'm in the right place because I always agree with Nina, but I agree with Nina here specifically. <laughs> 
<laughs> about this knighthood theme because I, I think it's just the next step along because Clash was mainly filled with uh, Sandok again's kind of hate for the whole notion and just, uh, just wanting to throw it all out. Then we get Storm with Jamie, which is our first real actual knight POV and his, his difficulties with vows and how you keep it and his disparaging of it. So it feels like George wanted to use Feast to say, okay, this is how it should actually be done. This is what a knight looks like. And it's not even technically a knight, even though we know she is really. And again, like I said earlier, it's just great because Brienne does fit all those ideals perfectly. And she really is the the flag bearer of the book for me. Very well said. I, you know, just maybe to add to that, I like that pattern you you established there with Clash being filled with Sandor's hate for the idea, Storm with Jamie's difficulty over the vows. And if we perhaps we go back to the first book, we have the the dream of knighthood as expressed by not just Sansa, but Bran, who was obsessed yeah. with the Kingsguard. It's like one of the first things we learned about him is he wanted to be a knight. So that's that is really good as a theme that runs through the whole books, uh, kind of escalating each time. Um, I wonder. We'll, I wonder what we'll say about this when we talk about knighthood and a dance with dragons. Mm, mm. Yes, we'll see. Here's another question. Uh, this is from Jenny C. This is a more of a comment than a question. She has a question that I think is fairly straightforward, but a comment that I'm really unaware of. She says, "Cat of the canals." Arya realizes that the faceless man taking all the waif's father's goods is the exaggeration, and says it must be two thirds. How does she know it's two thirds specifically? I think it's that. That's basically how they operate. Often it's two-thirds is, is, what they, is what they require. Now, a bigger question might be, how do they actually determine what someone's two-third of someone's wealth is? Like, how do they go about doing that? But, uh, you know, we don't need to get into that. Does, does, any, does anyone else have a different answer here? Or is that... No, that feels pretty straightforward. Two-thirds just feels like a sort of, well, it's not everything, but it's a lot of things. <laughs> it is a lot. Yeah, geez. And But she leaves a comment here that's news to maybe all of us. Uh, it's certainly news to me. Uh, she, Jenny C. says, there's a real-world convicted poisoner named Baba Anuchka who would price her potions, meaning her poisons, based on the buyer's means. So she also would look at the person's wealth and ability to buy and price it accordingly. So I wonder if that is an influence on George. I'll have to do some more research on Baba Anuchka. That's very interesting. Thank you for that tip, Jenny. <laughs> also, a super chat from Dorota Zaranaska says, Jamie's dream. During one of my rereads, I started to believe the way Joanna refers to father and Tywin hints that Cersei and Jamie may be kids of Ares. Even if you disagree, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, this is an interesting subject. I don't think Cersei and Jamie are kids of Ares. However, it was a long-running theory for quite a while, and it was pretty valid because there wasn't any... There was a lot of connection between these characters. Maybe Jamie less so, but... Cersei and Ares, obviously, there's a lot of parallel, like a huge number of parallels. So <laughs> it's supported, except for when we get to the World of Ice and Fire, which came out in 2014. George uh, very clearly stated the birth dates of these characters, and it doesn't really line up. It, it, he was pretty specific with where Ares was and where Joanna was at the time of their birth, and it doesn't really work. So I think he may have even done this on purpose because it's so specific. It, it's it's very seems geared towards eliminating that theory. However, it's not a hundred percent off the table, but that was a real shot of cold water to it. Does anyone else have a different take there, or is that basically how you feel? Or if you have any other interesting thoughts from yeah. before that reveal, because I think it was really interesting when that theory was valid, but uh, or more valid. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would just want to say that the thing from the world of ice fire, the language he uses is uh, to 
which I agree, it was a big shot of cold water to the theory, but the language he uses is that uh, after a certain point, Joanna was seldom in King's Landing. And I always love to point out that seldom isn't <laughs> never. Seldom actually seldom implies that she was in King's Landing. There was at least once. <laughs> at least once during that time period. So I don't think he closed the door completely. I agree. And like you said, there is so much Cersei. I just finished, uh, we just finished including that in our upcoming episode. And there's so much Cersei Aries stuff, which, you know, could just be because they're in a similar situation and things are, you know, they have, have a similar temperament. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that they're um, related, uh, but you know, there's those dance are there. So red herrings are not mm-hmm. time will tell. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Any other uh, thoughts on that? Um, Joe or Nina? I'm, I'm very, very, very strongly of the opinion that all three of Tywin's children are both biologically his children and completely 100% Tywin's children. They are, they are Tywin's children in every single sense of the word, which is very unfortunate for them because being Tywin's child is, is probably the worst thing that could happen to you. <laughs> Um, yeah. So here's another, here's a comment from Sicarius 071 about the concept of buying based on means. It's, it's, he says, or she, uh, they say the concept pops up in a bunch, a bunch in storytelling. The Bible makes reference to a parable where a poor man giving a small amount is more meaningful because of what the value means. That's a good yeah. point. Yes. It's, it's, that also is brought up in A Song of Ice and Fire with the concept of sacrifice. Yeah. Melisandre says, mm-hmm. a man with a thousand cows gives one. What is he truly given? Mm-hmm. But if you give your only cow... Yeah, if you give your only... But let's not call daughters cows, though, either, <laughs> Melisandre. <laughs> what's what do you really mean there, red woman? <laughs> but it is, it is, it's true. that It's not, uh, it's not, certainly not an invention by George and probably not even an invention from the Bible. It's probably just a, a human concept that's existed for a long time. It's, it's a basic tenet of proportionality. Well, let's talk about themes and structure. There's so many powerful themes in this book. It's a, it's a, a, a thing that we've talked about, really makes it stand out. Character stuff, especially. Identity is a huge one. We talked about knighthood a bit. We talk about oaths and faith. Uh, with the Faith of the Seven coming up, that's a whole other angle to it. We got the Kingsguard, the Night's Watch. Always, that's always a thing. Duty versus love has been a theme throughout the books. Um, we also have a, a theme that kind of applies to that roughly. We have a lot of kind of infiltrating characters, characters in dis- either in disguise or playing, a, a, pretending to be something they're not, or both. Uh, Alaris Sorella is a pretty straightforward one. Jockin, uh, Arya, and the Faceless Man, that's just a bottomless well of another sort. We got Shadrick getting into Littlefinger's household. We got Thomas Evans and River Run. We got Osney Kettleblack not actually going to the Night's Watch, but that idea was floated. It was a plan that just didn't happen. We have seduction is a pretty strong theme. Cersei, Taina, the Kettleblacks, Orane Waters. I see a Lady Gwyn added here. That's a good one. Uh, and so that raises that. Well, you wrote a question here, Lady Gwyn. This is a good place to discuss some of these ideas here uh, with yeah. this question. You brought up in, in, interesting to consider in the case of both Taina and Orane, who is seducing whom? Great question. What do you guys think? Joe, we haven't heard from you in a minute. What do you think about this seduction topic? And I see you maybe have written uh, Littlefinger on here. I wrote Littlefinger as someone who's trying to seduce someone. He's not really 
getting there, uh, we hope. And you wrote, man, is that worse than I remember? <laughs> so let's start with yeah. you there. <laughs> He's always worse than I remember. I think <laughs> I consider him bad and then I read again and he gets worse and worse every time. Mm-hmm. But especially uh, in Sansa's last chapter, kind of near the end there, towards the end of the chapter, I mean, it's just... It's just worse than I remember. I know he's bad. I know he's abusing her and all these things. But it's just worse when she comes in and sees him there down at the gates of the moon and he makes her kiss him again. And it's the language. It's always the language George uses that. It's always uh, a duty, a dutiful kiss or whatever. It's very clear Sansa does not want to be doing this. But not only is he making her now, he's like commenting on performance. Like that kiss isn't good enough. You need to be doing a better kiss. As if there's any more like disgusting concept to get across. And it's really, really prevalent throughout like any kind of abuse case, like real world, that you make the victim one feel like they've done wrong and then two that they owe you something, that you owe me a kiss. And again, she's like 13. So this is absolutely going to work on her. Even without this whole, you owe me for your safety, I'm the only thing keeping you alive thing that he's got going. But then it also, the chapter even ends with him asking for another one, which I think is what I actually forgot because we get this whole plan of, okay, here's Harry and you're going to do this. And then I'll give you Winterfell and an army and everything's going to be really, really good. And now you actually have to pay for it with this other kiss. And it's really left quite open and actually more sinister level than I remember. And thankfully, we do have the wins preview chapters, so I don't think anything that bad does happen. But if you don't have those, you can read into it that this is going to be a building thing because I think because he has this um, this Harry thing, he knows he's kind of running out of time with Sansa. She won't be 100% in his grasp forever. So even though he probably knows it's bad for his overall plan, he can't help himself and he's going to take what he can to be really crass and lower the tone here and make everyone very upset. Yeah, that's really well said, Joe. And I think just to add to that, before I turn it over to Nina and Lady Gwyn here, who I definitely want to get takes from on this subject, I think society has become more savvy to the ways that this type of manipulation happens. Like the the techniques that Littlefinger is using are more spoken of openly in the world today than they were even when this was written or even say 10 years ago. Like the whole world has become more aware of the patterns of abuse. I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, it's appropriately addressed everywhere, but it is more part of the conversation. And so this additional awareness helps us see little fingers using these techniques. Uh, my thoughts were, were more of a going back to Cersei and, and, and Jamie and how they, you know, they produce, they usually are mirrors to each other. So when, when you see the two of them, they're presenting some sort of inversion a lot. And you got Cersei trying or trying her best to seduce all these completely unsavory people, <laughs> which, you know, like, but the, the flip side of that is who was really in the driver's seat there because we suspect that at least Tana and possibly also Arain are, uh, working for someone else but then you have jamie who's resisting seduction over and over and i never really thought about it until i read this but I, and i thought about his arc and it's it, it comes up i might have even missed one cersei gay house amy pia hildy mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just got women throwing themselves at him and he's it's part of his improvement arc yeah uh, that he is really resisting. He's, he's a celebrity. He's determined to be the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good, that's a great point. Something and, and related to that, uh, I'll add that something that I didn't really fully grasp on prior reads was just how big a deal it is to Jamie that Cersei cheated on him and how mm-hmm. that ref- is reflected mm-hmm. by this about how this, like he, of all the things she's doing, it's, it's almost not a good look for Jamie because she's doing so many awful things, but he keeps coming back to the cheating. That's the thing that yeah. really gets yeah. him. So Nina, if you want to comment on that or any other yeah. related topics, I'd no. love to hear it. Absolutely, because that's actually a point that I actually wrote something on um, with respect to this. And I think I added it in the uh, Valerie Reedus, but who so. knows what yeah. I wrote. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all about um, is that, you know, Jamie at the very end of, toward the end of the book, you know, he sees Ryman Frey's sex worker and, you know, she calls herself the queen of whores. And Jamie's like, no, that's, that's Cersei's title in, in his head. <sighs> yeah, that was and vicious. here's, <laughs> well, what makes it especially heart wrenching for me is that the very next chapter, we see Cersei and Osney is really forcing sex on her. He is the one who is setting the place, the time, how it is happening. He is the one who is objectifying her to the extent of, no, keep your crown on. I like your crown on. It's Mm -hmm. that's, that's just a, that's just adding to it for him. And it's, you know, Jamie is thinking about Cersei as Cersei is the queen of horrors. Cersei is sleeping with all of these men. Cersei is completely unfaithful. And it's not that it's not that it's untrue that Cersei slept with multiple people, but you're seeing Cersei in a position where this is an act of desperation. This is what Cersei believes is the only thing that can keep her safe from her and her son being murdered. And it's just, it's very, it's very, very heart-wrenching and sad to me. Yeah, and they and it's interesting too about their their relationship so tight, yet they both have not discussed with each other are one of these really crucial personality aspects. Mm -hmm. Cersei never told Jamie about the Valonqar and Jamie hasn't, doesn't sound like he ever fully invested Cersei with the story of Ares and all that and why. Uh, It doesn't seem like he ever really told her all his reasoning, like what he told Brienne. That was not just a big deal because he told someone, but that it wasn't Cersei, (laughs) you know? Or am I, do you guys have that impression that he never told Cersei about? uh, Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Absolutely. Right yeah. 100%, which, you know, every, makes me question their relationship more and more every time I reread uh, because of exactly what you said. They haven't shared these most uh, deepest, sort of darkest things from from their psyche with each other. Um, so when they talk about completing each other and or Cersei thinks that, I guess, and, and how close they are. No, I, you know, I don't really buy it because they haven't, Really, <laughs> really shared their souls with each other, have they? No, yeah. And they both do end point. up telling people who are not their partner. Yeah, <laughs> j- exactly. Yeah, that's great. Because yes, Cer- Cersei tells Tyna. Cersei tells Tyna and sort of tells Kyburn. Yeah, too. sort of. Not all the details, but but some of them. Yeah, you're right. So that is really quite telling. I think it's it's just a more legacy of Tywin. Like you're not supposed to uh, be vulnerable and admit, like, "Hey, I'm really worried about this prophecy. Yeah. Oh, I had this really bad time with my boss." You don't say that kind of thing because you're supposed to be the warrior and you're supposed to be the pretty queen. We don't have those problems oh, because point. Tywin sure as hell never came to them and was like, "Oh, I'm having a rough day at work." That's Lion not never cries. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So it's just never uh, got across. And it's interesting that they're both so similar. Whereas Tyrion has to wear what he's upset about on his sleeve because everyone can see it. So it's completely, he doesn't get to internalize as much other than the Taisha thing, which he has, but that's also known by other people. So it's a bit different from those two who can keep their, their secrets 100% in, whereas Tyrion doesn't really get that uh, luxury, so to speak. Really good. Yeah. Great take, Joe. 
Okay, let's let's do one more question and then take a, a mid-roll break. And then after the mid-roll, we're going to come back and talk about the rise of magic. So that'll be exciting. So this last point here for now, um, I want to talk a little, about, a little bit about bloodlines. We, we talk, I made the joke about Renifer Longwaters. And it's uh, one thing that stood out to me this time too that I hadn't really credited before was just how much Blackfire slash Aegon sixth Young Griff setup there is, even though he's completely still unmentioned <laughs> to this point in the narrative, other than some clues and indirect hints that he exists. But the whole, you know, the clanking dragon in stuff, mm-hmm. uh, but also, which that's been known for a long time. But one thing that I paid more attention to this time was who might fight for whom when it all comes down. A big clue was Crack Claw Point when Brienne goes there and they're talking about, we're good dragon men up here. And then... How do we we get we get George gives us a clue as to whether the Crackclaw men will fight for Aegon or Daenerys when we're told that they were brought into the fold by Visenya and that lean that makes me lean Daenerys there but even that's not certain and then we have that ex- the extension of this thought process like J- Nina you made a point during Valaritas about Jamie inspecting the walls and mm, how yeah. the gates and how that might be a clue that. Aegon's people are just going to be let in rather than have to fight their way in or something like that. Was there anything along these lines or here's the general question. You don't have to speak to this actual question if you want to speak to something that's related to this, but is blood actually special in this? Is that something that George is speaking to? We have all these concepts, a king's blood matters or, but then we have, well, when does it stop mattering? How many generations before it is meaningless? Like this, again, we come back to Renifer Longwaters or a parallel character like Brown Ben Plum, who both of those guys relate back to the same person, by the way. I think I mentioned that at the time, but it's kind of fun to, to, to note. It's interesting that we get so much talk on bloodlines because we're not we're not really any plot lines that are supposed to feature. So like we're not with Melisandre, we're not at the Wall, uh, we're not with Daenerys and and or Jon Griff yet. So we're not actually supposed to focus on it. But like you say, we do. George keeps bringing it up. I think to maybe say that uh, some of it is kind of self fulfilling prophecy in its own way. Like you can make someone special just because you say they are. Because mm-hmm. like Sam's whole journey is based on protecting two people at the opposite ends of life in, in Mance's child and, and, and Maester Eamon who are being protected due to their blood. So you can just make people, like they wouldn't have gone on that journey without that perception of their blood being. So that's changing things. So yeah, I think it's George kind of saying you can make this stuff up to a certain degree and um, maybe don't put so much in what Melisandre is really confident in. And some of it is obviously true uh, because we've seen it work, but some of it is not and some of it's people seeing things that they want to see rather than based on reality. Uh, it's almost kind of like a mother's dragon type thing. You can see it, but it doesn't mean it's got all the substance in the world. Well said, yeah. And I think that concept is reflected in a lot of different characters. Melisandre and Euron are, are probably the top example I can think of. Characters that have real magic, but use tricks to make themselves even look to look even more magical. And perhaps the place that reflects that the most is Hall, where there's all these rumors about ghosts and stuff. And that might be true, but people believe it's true for sure. And that they act as if it's true. So acting on belief, it's sort of like uh, you, you acting on what's true, whether it's true or not, it may as well be true in terms of how people behave. And it looks like Lady Gwen, you have cited an, uh, a very, a line that really encapsulates this, this concept quite well that was introduced books ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's, I think it's, there's this parallel with Barris's comment, power resides where people believe it resides. So 
So if we set aside dragon dreams and controlling dragons and that sort of thing, if we can, um, mm-hmm. the more mundane ways of dragon blood might be used in the future to bolster claims, for instance, are exactly shadows on the wall. So hey, this might come into play with Aegon plot in the future. As an aside, speaking of that, you, you mentioned Blackfires and that made me uh, think about how this was really where, you know, it, when George, we mentioned already that he was writing the Sworn Sword kind of in parallel with this. And that's where all the Blackfire background was really given to us at first. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think he's, he's thinking a lot about how that theme is going to uh, come into play in the future. It might be important, like if we bring back in controlling dragons, it could be very important there. But in terms of uh, making a claim to something based on on that bloodline or any other bloodline, it's very hard to say whether that's really important. Yeah, it really is. They don't have DNA tests. (laughs) Yeah, there's kind of two angles to it, right? Like the human side of it, whether your birth and, and blood matters, but there's also the magic and what actual effect that has beyond, you know, perception and, and, um, socialization. You know, anything to add to this? Yeah, just, just in a sense. Well, first of all, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, we get Renna for Longwaters and, and Jamie's very dismissive of the idea that he could in fact be a Targaryen descendant, even though he, he very clearly is. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of, it's almost sort of a joke on like, oh, here's all of the secret Targaryens, but in the universe, no one believes in the secret Targaryens. Um, so that's just sort of funny. But no, um, you know, I think bloodlines, bloodlines matter in the sense of, identity in the sense that they give you a sort of personal identity. You know, in, in this book, it's very much Arya and Sansa are pretending to be people who are not Starks while always remembering that they are Starks and acting like Starks, both mm. of them. So in a sense of giving up a sense of personal identity, yes, bloodlines matter very much. But in the sense of that's only one part of you and what you choose to do is just as much, if not more important than the families that you were born to. So it's, what you choose to do is is really what defines you and you know your identity is just sort of sort of part of that yeah well mm. well said i think probably manson might be the best uh, representation of that and, mm. and it links into manson's son being taken away because mm-hmm. manson isn't a king he just started calling like like he even says i don't wear a crown i don't sit on a throne i don't do any of this there's no connection between me and uh, joffrey at the time so what difference does it make if someone just walks into flea bottom and says i'm king of flea bottom does that make their blood special is exactly what nina said it's what you do mm-hmm. with the axe mance is kingly and if it walks like a king and talks like a king does that affect what is, is does he have king's blood so it's a really interesting argument yeah that's that's, that's a well good way to put it. i think mance is a fantastic example there of the whole thing Okay, let's give a few shout-outs for our mid-roll here, and then we'll come back with some talk about the rise of magic. Got a lot of cool notes there. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer is declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from Beyond the Wall. A Laurel of Glory in the Name of Love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tokian and Arbiter of Scotch. From Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson couple of blood riders to shout out as well. That would be Koakoi called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. Also want to shout out our northern champions. If I can find the list, where'd they go? There they are. Jay Wilson, Winter's King. We got Winter's King, Lord of the First Men. There are dueling kings there. 
Lady Ardross, Mother of Wolves, is wielder of the Valyrian steel Mant- Claymore Manticore. Jake Snow, a.k.a. Jacob Ice Eyes, is the bastard of Last River. Lord Darren of House Rambler, motto, the last hunt is ceaseless. Lady Bobby of House Mitchell. Gandalf the White, Lord of House Seamorn. Sherry of Skane, last of the long night archaeologists and wielder of the untested hypothesis of Valyrian steel trowel with a dragon bone handle. Lady Nicole of House Anime, the small can be powerful, captain of Sweet Camellia. And Adelard the Wanderer, wielder of the Valyrian steel axe, Frostfall. Cool, y'all. Thank you very much for the support. Love to shout out those fun names. Let's get right back to it. Rise of Magic Time. So much in this book. I'm, uh, this is an incomplete <laughs> list, but I just want to throw a few out there. And it's interesting to me that we deal, we have so much magic in this book without going beyond the wall or hardly being there at all. We technically are at the wall for a minute or even directly dealing with Daenerys. So that's two major, major sources of magic plotline, neither of which are, are featured here, but we still get a ton of magic. Glass candles, dragon binder. Joe, you write down broken horn uh, that, that Sam brought with him is now in Euron's vicinity. Great point. Uh, Jamie's ghost mom, dream mom. I don't even know what to call that, <laughs> but it's something and it seems to be quite possibly magical. Marwin and his takes and conspiracies. There's all sorts. He opens up the doors to lots of things. Eamon's you know, deathbed speeches and prophecies are obviously really big. They change our perception of, of who the last hero slash Azor Ahai, not last hero, but Azor Ahai, Prince of the Promised was. Euron, just in general, there's lots of things associated with him and even little bits like the Ironborn Origins, which also ties into our bloodlines thing. But that's such a side topic where we won't go there other than to throw out the mention. Kyborg. I mean, I assume there's magic involved in the any sort of animation of dead flesh. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Then you have things like Cersei and Maggie the Frog, which technically happened a long time ago. But we have examples of that in, in current time. We have that character Eno One Eye at uh, the which brothel was that? I doesn't happy know. Doesn't, port? Happy, she port. The happy port. Yeah, she had yeah. The happy port. And of course, that's another in the long line of one-eyed characters with prophetic powers, to referencing mm-hmm. Odin. We have the further rise of Nymeria, the wolf. Uh, yeah. So, geez, <laughs> um, that is so much. So, I have a couple of questions around these topics. One thing I just as another piece of setup. A new tactic I've been using is to consider evidence in reverse. Like if a theory, uh, when considering a theory, if it turns out to be true, what parallels will it create with other things that definitely did happen? For example, if Euron destroys the high tower, is that going to look like a parallel to taking down the Tower of the Hand or the Tower of Joy? Mm-hmm. Uh, or some other tower? Uh, Lady Gwyn, you mentioned Eastwatch. That's an interesting idea. What do you, what do, you uh, do you have well, anything so- to add to that? No, I mean, really, it just was thinking of your technique of looking in reverse and then also looking kind of forward and what what else could we have this whole theme of towers being taken down? <laughs> and I thought about Eastwatch, you know, if if Eastwatch comes down, if that's the tower in Melisandre's uh, vision, which people have suggested that it could be, uh, that it could be a place of um, where, you know, the wall is breached, it could just be another parallel with these towers coming down. And I, I'm not sure what that leads to because honestly, towers coming down is, is, <laughs> is a kind of a phallic imagery. So <laughs> I, I just don't know where to go with that at this point. They all, they all have, Euron is one of the people we're talking about. And a lot of them are burning at the tip. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
The high tower at the flame. You got, even got Stannis has this little watchtower that he's hanging out, and that tip's burning. <laughs> glass candles are kind of like little mini towers with the tip is right. burning, and you don't really want to mess with one of those glass candles. You do not want to touch that. <laughs> okay. This really went off. Uh, this really... Um, Ooh, we should... Yeah, we're talking about taking towers down. We're talking about erecting towers instead. Hmm. So let's talk about some variety. Let's take a few questions. Let me get takes from you guys. Your Some predictions associated with Old Town and the characters there. Let's start with what do you think... And basically, what do we think is going to happen in Old Town? Joe, we'll start with you this time. Uh, nothing good, probably. <laughs> you know, there's lots of different theories out there and they all seem to be along the same theme of something really, really bad happening, uh, both <laughs> probably in the immediate and the after all, um, and the overall rather. I'm quite worried, to be honest, about what is going to be going down and how things just seem to be falling into Yon's lap. It's really lucky that Cersei didn't let uh, Paxton Redwine go and it's really lucky that Sam has brought this horn that might be even more important than his Dragonbinder horn along and um, you know he's not a million miles away from Starfall and what if he goes to get Dawn or something like that and he could just get everything have the full set we don't know <laughs> um, what I'm obviously worried about mainly is what happens to Sam I think that's probably the same for all of us I think his studies will probably be cut short and he's going to have to get away with Gilly even if she's there or not I still don't know we don't know how Euron's going to interact with these other multiple factions we've got going on in Old Town. That's just the ones we know about. How, what's going to happen with Leighton Hightown? What, what does he know? He's got to know something. It's got to be important in some way. What about the maesters? Uh, how are they actually going to react to this? What is the alchemist up to? I still have no idea. I still the kind of <laughs> Charlie Day meme. I really tried to work it out this time and I've got nowhere at all. All I can think is glass candles. There's something to do with glass candles. There's um, so many moving parts things. that might connect to yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or might not. I'm just obsessed with the glass candle this time. I'm not even in world, but kind of as George using them as a tool, thinking I kind of need to hurry up here and I need people to be able to talk and communicate a bit faster. I know I'll put even these things that allow people miles away to talk to each other. So maybe I can just get a few of these rivers streaming a little bit quicker and move my story along because it's taking a while. So I'm going to put in this little cheat code. So that's why I'm most excited about Glass Candles, but also for the story as well. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like he introduced the telephone. He's just like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We've got to never, never mind about these ravens. Yeah, the like, ravens just aren't fast <laughs> enough. They're too slow. Yeah. We need a Valyrian equivalent. We got the Nor. That's this is the old gods or the ravens old school telephone. We need a Valyrian telephone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. What do you... What do you think about Old Town, Lady Gwen? Like, Joe, again, I'm going to just say not good, nothing good. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't given a lot of thought because there's so many ideas and everything kind of uh, links up. But yeah, I, it, it's just one of those plot lines that gives me a kind of a sinking feeling. That, <laughs> that uh-oh feeling. <laughs> right. I mean, they're preparing for Euron as if he's a traditional Ironborn threat, right? They're like, mm-hmm. okay, ships versus ships. Meet them at sea. No, <laughs> they have no idea what they're yeah. in for. Nina, what about you? Do you have Do you have kind of a similar like uh oh yeah, feeling? Or is it's, this, yeah. It, no, it's an uh oh feeling. It's definitely an uh oh feeling. Um, <laughs> I think that I think that Euron is planning on using the coming Redwind fleet as a sort of major human sacrifice to Whoa. work something not very good. Wow. Uh, I have a feeling that Euron is going to get his hands on that horn. I have a feeling Euron's going to blow that. horn. And that's how the wall comes down. 
possibly from the top of the high tower. Who knows? Uh, I have a feeling that Sam, maybe Gilly, Sorella slash Alaris, and maybe Fake Pete slash Jacken uh, are going to get out of there and you know get get out. Uh, but I I, I kind of see Old Town sort of a supernatural nuclear explosion. Nothing mm. nothing good. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's set up to be. It's too great to not to survive, right? <laughs> it's too cool. You don't to even live. you don't even see Old Town and say that it's to, to survive this long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the one of the more ominous lines seems so not ominous. It seems just so throwaway, like, ah, the, the, the quill and tankard had stood for 600 years and it would be dead for 600 more. <laughs> It'd no, probably keep going. <laughs> it probably won't stand for six months more. But <laughs> Anytime you predict I'll something for like six hours anything more. <laughs> good is going to happen, you just have to go. No. Yeah, yeah, it's so bad. Yeah. Uh, okay, so here, I'm going to put you all on the spot with a couple of simple questions. This doesn't require a lot of explanation, just you can expand on it if you want, but you can also just say yes or no. Will... You're on ride a dragon, Nina. Uh, no, probably, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's tough. I, I go back and forth on it. I'll say yes myself. I think I think I'm going to say yes, but I agree with the the not confidence in it. Euron <laughs> will not hold on to a dragon. Let me put it that way. Euron will not hold on to a dragon. Okay, that's that's okay. that makes sense. That's that that makes sense in terms of a halfway answer because he he's sort of a yes, but not a real not a true <laughs> control the dragon. What about you, Lady Gwen? I don't know, but yeah, I say no, but it's, it's maybe because I don't want him to. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's something I haven't thought about a lot. And whenever I think about it, I kind of like go, oh, no. Well, here's two two things that I think argue for it, maybe to add to your, to help you consider it a little more. Maybe this pushes mm-hmm. you one way or the other. Uh, one is the TV show having Night King do it, which I think Night King is the parallel to Euron in the yeah. book. So there's, that's one thing. The other thing is if Night King takes down, since he took down the wall with his dragon as an alternate idea, that could happen instead of using the horn. It would still be the horn, but it would be indirect. The horn gives him the dragon, the dragon takes down the wall. That's yeah. similar. Uh, the mm-hmm. other one is the, is the compare is how well of a, much of a parallel he is to aim into one eye, including the one blue mm-hmm. eye, mm-hmm. and maybe you know dying over the god's eye in some dragon battle. It just yes, glad I would be get behind. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because the dragons in this case might be the color of ice and fire. We have potentially. Well, they were potentially at the case of, of the God's Eye, meaning there won't be a red dragon this time, but there was a red dragon. Caraxes was a red dragon, and, and Vagar is pale. <laughs> we don't know the full color, but pale. So that could be ice and fire colors. So that, that's kind of neat. Anyway, who Joe, you didn't answer this one yet. What do you think? Uh, no, I think I'm along the same lines as Lady Gwen. I don't want him to, so I refuse to consider the possibility. <laughs> These are my books. George will write them as I see fit. Yeah. Um, I actually see... I actually think uh, quite a good thing to see would be um, a little bit like what Nina says, not so much uh, he'll ride one, but possibly not even control himself, but just kind of break out of Danny's control. If he sets one wild or sets one insane, if he tries to walk it or something stupid oh. like that, and oh. uh, an insane dragon over King's Landing is going to do as much damage as he would anyway. And he likes chaos, so that might just be his uh, 
it next thing to do. You might get bored after taking down the wall and inviting the white. So I want something else now. I'll set a dragon loose on all of you. You know, that actually could tie into the way the show worked very vaguely as well, because the show gave us an undead dragon, which I've wondered mm-hmm. about if we could get that in the books, either because of the concept of an ice dragon that could be basically what's being referred to there. But yeah, if you have an insane wild dragon that people have to kill, then maybe it gets resurrected as a, a, a white GHT dragon. It would work well if he, no, if he does that to Viserion because it's linked to Viserys being half mad anyway. So that would work quite oh, well. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Nice one. Related question uh, is Outlook for Gilly at Horn Hill. Joe, you question if she's even going to get to go there. Yeah, I don't know because when we reread, uh, I had to reread like three times to make sure, but it never actually says that she gets off the boat off the cinnamon mm-hmm. wind. <laughs> so it is, I doubt that. George is going to really have time to explore Gilly's another trip to Marine, but it would be quite fun. And it would be a hell of a journey to go all the way from Craster's Keep to Marine. Literally, you can't get any further away. So it would be cool. And she'd get away from Euron, so I'm all for it. And I just like the cinnamon wind and it's crude. So it would be good for Gilly, but she's probably still there. There's a lot of pluses, a lot of pros to this uh, (laughs) this idea. (laughs) And it's what I want, so it will happen. There we go. Yes. Back to that again. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, Lady Gwen, what about you? Well, I, you know, I did, yeah, I, technically she hasn't really made it there yet, but um, assuming she does, and I think it may be, you know, Sam's flight from from uh, Old Town maybe turns out to be him bringing her to Horn Hill. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. I was looking at a map as I was thinking about this. <laughs> Because you have to have a map, so it's like, oh, what's happening over there? Where is Horn Hill? <laughs> it's it seems far enough removed from water. You know, they make a lot of. There's a lot made in Ashes chapters about how the Ironborn don't go far from the sea, and I, I don't think that's going to change much with Euron, just simply because they're you know they're in boats. They're going to be coastal. They're going to be you know going far up the Mander potentially. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the map. Almost every single major castle in the Reach is accessible by river or is on the coast, except for Horn Hill. Mm. So uh, possibly that's maybe one of the few places where they would be safe. The most landlocked of seats. Hmm. Yep. Yes. So, okay. That gave me hope. Nina, what about you? What do you think for Gilly <laughs> um, and Horn Hill and all that? I, I did. It's funny. I was actually just pulling up the map on my World of Winds and Fire after like <laughs> 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 But I um, love But no, I do think, um, I don't know that Sam will take Gilly to Horn Hill before everything happens at Old Town, just because I feel like that would be a lot of back and forth. Like, he took her to Horn Hill, and then he went back, and then he went back to Horn Hill. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like for narrative simplicity, I think, you know, Gilly might get off, Sam might, you know, plot reason be like, oh, he's trying to find someone to go to Horn Hill. But then Sam, Gilly, Sorella, and again, maybe Pete, go to go to Horn Hill, maybe because, you know, after everything happens, Sam's like, oh, I got to warn my mom and sisters that, hey, there's <laughs> there's a, a madman who has just, you know, exploded a city. Can you maybe get out of here? <laughs> um, you're not safe. So I, I'm thinking that they, they go to Horn Hill then rather than, you know, go to Horn Hill prior. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's very reasonable. There's a lot of logic behind that take. Okay, so let's move on. Another question. I actually have this question farther down in the document, but uh, since we're talking about Euron and stuff, this is the time to, to mention it. Uh, this is another going forward question. 
Will Euron and Cersei ally and or have a relationship as not as portrayed in the show, but as suggested by the show? Of course, it won't be like the show, but it might be the show may have done its own version of that because George told them that it was going to happen in the books. One, I'll, I'll give a little setup for this. Euron has not attacked the West, which is uh, interesting. It leaves that open. He certainly has a personality similar to Cersei in in some ways in that they don't like to be, they want to be able to do whatever they want. They want to be able to, uh, they want no restrictions. They want absolute power and uh, they want people to follow them. And of course, there's uh, Euron, maybe if he wants a, this is getting a little farther off, but if Euron wants to have like a king's blooded child, Cersei would be a candidate for that if he's unable to get Daenerys. She might be like the next best thing if he can't get her. I don't know. So, but mostly it's the suggestion from the TV show and these thematic things that align. I've been, I was more on the lookout for it this time through because I hadn't really considered it last time. So what do you think? You're on Cersei or no? No. And the reason okay. I say this is because I don't think Cersei has anything that Euron wants. <laughs> you, okay, that's Euron, fair. Yeah. Euron, doesn't, Euron doesn't just want to be king. Euron wants to be a god king in the manner of <laughs> like Valyria, but even even more evil. So I don't, Cersei can't give him that. Daenerys with dragons can give him that. Cersei can give him nothing. So I think he would think of her as maybe amusing, but basically not very interesting in terms of taking. Maybe more of a, just one of his concubines at most or something like that. Not that, not that it would go that way, but that's how he would right. see her. Okay. But I don't need, frankly, I don't even think they're going to interact. Okay, cool. Um, Joe, what about you? Yeah, I, t- I think Nina got it right there. Uh, I don't think if of all the people Euron can choose, I don't know why you would choose the one seemingly on the downturn and lose this lost <laughs> She's at the bottom of the pile. You're right. That, that uh, explains um, why she might want to hook up with him. But the other yeah. hand is like, well, why would he want Well, him? actually, I think the flip side is we've seen all this stuff about how Cersei does not want to share her power. And she does especially not want to share it with a man again. She's already done that Good once point. before and she did not enjoy it. So unless there's really... Uh, she's kind of in the mood, well, I have literally no other choice. It's this or nothing. Then maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. Anyway, the, the, I don't want to see it. The show did portray it in the way you're describing, which is that Cersei tried to keep Euron as a subordinate. And he was trying to push mm. to be her equal with the marriage. Which was like, let's get married. Let's get married. But you're, but you're right that that is a good, like, she wouldn't necessarily accept anything other than that, if at all. So that's that's a strong point. Um, Lady Gwen, let's, let's hear you from you on yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've kind of, agreeing there although god knows she's going to need allies so she's not going to have any left um yeah obviously all the other uh, regions have sort of escaped her control so she's left with the crown lands and the westerlands although really i don't know much about the westerlands and neither does she <laughs> but, yeah, she, doesn't, she's, she doesn't live there very much she hasn't lived there for a very long time <laughs> yeah. so but you know i assume she knows she feels like she can fall back on that the crown lands are just slipping through her grasp yeah um, as you know as dance goes on and as winds opens she's losing she's lost uh, Stokeworth, and she's probably going to lose Rosby, and these are some of the biggest houses uh, in, other than the ones that are already the Lords of the Narrow Sea, who are still mostly with Stannis. So, I, I mean, I could see her wanting to be Euron's ally. Not, yeah. okay. not, not equal. Uh, I could see him being intrigued by her if she blows something up in a giant way like he did. <laughs> uh, you know, he might be like, hmm, but, you know, and, and there's nothing to stop Euron, really, from wanting another wife i mean he's he's not the kind of guy to stand on ceremony and be like oh no i'm saving myself for daenerys you know i could see him making a play for it if he thought it would bring him something but yeah i don't see what it would really bring either one of them it's a good point narratively speaking so 
He might be most interested in Kyburn if he gets to say, so, oh, Mario, if I can talk to Kyburn, then I can do this, this uh, Kyborg thing, sure. Yeah, I came idea. for the boom, boom explosion, and I stayed for your for your dark magic. Yes, I want necromancy on my team, too. Yeah, he would want some, like, a squadron of Robert Strong's there. <laughs> but his dead can never die, but rises harder to fight. It's right there. It's right there. In this, their a lot of these. <laughs> and they're silent as well. They can go and serve on the silence. He loves, yeah, it's, they're made for him, I swear, yeah. So th- that is, uh, those are strong takes there. Also, one other thing to add to this, one other reason I, I consider this idea is that I don't think anyone think, any of us anyway, think that Cersei's going to die with when Aegon comes. Her death will come later. It's not that it's, Aegon's death, this won't, these two things won't necessarily coincide. She'll probably get away from King's Landing. And that's uh, one of the reasons. I don't, I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> You think she won't get away from King's Landing? Okay, that's fair. I, I shouldn't speak I for have, other people. <laughs> I, yeah, I have a, I have a name. I don't have a lot of strong feelings on where it happens, but I could see it all kind of happening in one sort of super dramatic. Yeah, moment. the the stuff in Fire and Blood about this whole Queen in the West thing is what is where some of this comes mm-hmm. from in my mind. Is that we have this notion of of a queen sitting there waiting for the Eastern King to come get her, like when Magor took the crown and and uh, Reyna was like, well. He's going to come for me eventually, and he never did. And <laughs> so, I don't know. Anyway, let's move on from that, though. That's, uh, I think we've covered that pretty well. A little bit less magical-oriented, let's talk a bit about Aftermath and Broken Men, but still magic-oriented because in the Riverlands, we have things like the wolves. And winter itself is, well, it's not unmagical in Westeros. It's not fully magical either. So this is a hugely powerful theme that ties into the magical stuff as well as the character stuff. It's one of the most important aspects of the book. Uh, not just broken men, but the the reign of contempt. There's contempt everywhere uh, for, for human life, for things like honor, things like guest right, things like tra- all sorts of traditions are, are gone. We have a lot of silence, um, not just from Euron, the Quiet Isle, things like that. Singers have a horrible time in this book. <laughs> it's a song of ice and fire. And the song theme is strong throughout all the books here. It takes a... this. The songs in this book would all be in a minor key. Let's put it that way. They're very sad and, 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 and such. And of course, on top of all that, we have revenge. Re- the revenge of the river lords, the revenge of the brotherhood, the revenge of its... Perhaps winter itself is a form of nature's revenge. And that may be more literal than... Uh, it seems if it turns out that the seasons are wonky because of the children and the others going after humanity, even as they're losing the war, something along those lines. I don't know exactly, but thematically, that's pretty powerful. So let's uh, let's go to Lady Gwyn first. Let's talk about the broken men and what the Riverlands will look like in the winds of winter. Anything you have to say about this bag of topics? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is a big bag too. <laughs> it is a large bag. <laughs> uh, so I think it's a it's going to be major. I once called the Riverlands in the Winds of Winter a shitstorm of Stark Tell events, <laughs> <laughs> and I still think that's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, we're thematically we'll continue to see what the price of war is with Broken Man. That theme isn't going anywhere, and vengeance. Uh, it's you know the innocents suffer most when the high lords play their game their games of thrones it's we're going to continue to see what the consequences of vengeance is are so yeah 
Not good. Shitstorms. <laughs> kind of like Old Town. Not good. Not good. Not good. Capital N, capital G. Not good. <laughs> uh, Nina, what about you? Th- what do you think about the Riverlands? Well, I was just, <laughs> I was just, I was just watching The Simpsons, and I was watching Skinner Sense of Snow, and there's a part in that episode where Lisa says, "No, don't dig out. There's probably rescue teams digging us right now." And it cuts to above the school, which is covered in snow, and there are two wolves standing there, and the one <laughs> says to the other in subtitles, "I smell human meat." And the other wolf says, I smell human meat also. And they just start digging through the stove. <laughs> and I felt like that, which I think I even texted you because I thought um, that was just so funny. And it's such a perfect, uh, it's such a perfect microcosm of, of what I imagine happening in the Riverlands in the winds of winter because winter is here. And also, you know, the, the Riverlands was hit really hard by the War of the Five Kings, which means that there is not as much or any food saved. So there is going to be lots of famine. There's mm. going to be lots of snow. There are lots of wolves out. There's a lots of people that are going to die. Yeah, yeah, mm, that's true. <laughs> Joe, uh, let's hear from you. Yeah, I think shitstorm's probably the way to put it, but a snowy shitstorm, it's all coming. <laughs> we've got this big boiling pot of like half a dozen different factions, like we've said, and the river on garrison and the wolves and the blackfish is out there and um, Holy 100 and those are people, Strongball, those people. And as Nina just said, there's no food for any of them. It's going to be less because it's probably going to be a winter like they've never seen before. I think it's going to end up as we've seen the North in dance, like in Stannis' march, and they're obviously not going to be able to cope with that at all. Not only that, but they're just screwed. The Riverlands are always screwed because of where they are. And there's this real encroaching feeling because you've got the shadow coming from the North. Now you've got Euron coming from the South. The dragon's coming in from the East. So not only do you have no food and uh, for enough people, you're probably going to have loads of refugees kind of swarming up from the Reach or maybe out of King's Landing. You don't know. Or even Mm -hmm. people trying to get out of the North. It's going to all be really, really bad. Like you say, most like old times, just going to be not good for anyone. And I think we're going to see all these things, uh, like Lady Gwen said, all these themes that we've already thought are pretty bad get worse and just prove how badly time that war actually was. We've not even seen the true consequences of it yet. I'd say that's a really good thing. I was going to bring up the same thing and you did it. uh, So that instead, that's really well done, Joe. You brought up the, the theme of it can always get worse, which is something we <laughs> harped on a lot during Valarita's year on is a great example of, of how, the, the, yeah, we've seen Ironborn leaders before that get uh, ambitious and start blowing stuff up, but Euron is, is worse than any of them. And uh, Cersei, you know, it can always get worse with Cersei. And there's, yeah, there's so many examples. You're right. Like the Riverlands, we saw it go through hell in Game, Clash, and Storm. And now there's all this evidence that, it, yeah, it will get worse. Are you kidding me? No, he's not kidding us. He's not at all. It is very much written in, well, written in snow. I'd say stuff. <laughs> snow works better here. So we've got a lot of, we've got a decent bit of questions built up from y'all. Let's pivot to those to make sure we can get them all in. First off, a related question to what we just discussed from No F in Aegon. Do we think the Brotherhood Without Banners took Maribald's food stores? And will we see him again? Slash, will he have to head back to the Quiet Isle if that's indeed what happened? Apparently, this was something you guys touched on a little bit on your stream yesterday with Radio Westeros and with Joe Buckley as a guest. So folks, definitely check that out. There's more Stoneheart chat there. I'm sure they've, I'm sure there's some stuff that we didn't cover here that, uh, if not a lot of stuff. Um, so I would, I would definitely recommend that. <laughs> um, so let's start, Joe, let's start with you on this question. Uh, I think Maribald has probably just gone on his way. Like uh, like I said, I don't think there's no reason for them to really um, 
keep him out of he's got nothing to do with the red wedding or what Stoneheart's trying to accomplish yeah and um yeah i think he's just going to be let off now will we see him again i probably hope not because if we do i just worry about dog i don't want a reality where we meet Maribold and dog's been eaten or something like that i'm not gonna be able to handle it so it's a good point i'm hoping he's just let been allowed to go into the uh, sunset and we can just pretend everything's fine for Maribold because yeah, there's they're safer if they don't show up, aren't they? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, just get out of the story. <laughs> get out, get out now. Uh, Nina, what do you think about that? He had all that food he was going to distribute. Did you think they just took it from him, even though maybe no. he was going to distribute to the same places anyway? Or No, I, I, I don't see, and this is more of a broader answer about the Brotherhood Without Banners. Currently, I don't see them as a as a constructive force. I see them as a destructive force. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think they're so much focused as they were in Storm on redistributing that. So I think I, I think what they say to Brienne is true. They sort of let him go on his way. So I'm I'm thinking that this, that may be the last we see of Maribald. He sort of served his thematic purpose. And certainly I don't want to see anything bad happen to him <laughs> in, in, in the other books. We've got another good question here. This one's from Mara Lee. How will Stoneheart react to John presumably being named a king a la Rob's will? And something I'd never considered in light of all this is the fact that she has Rob's crown in her possession. And so if John ascends to the king, uh, the kingdom of the North, either because of Rob's will or other means, probably Rob's will, uh, then, well, she has the crown. Uh, is that going to matter? Is the crown kind of irrelevant? Very glad because this is something I've become obsessed with just in the past week while I was getting ready for uh, the live stream of Radio Restos. I've just, I was saying yesterday, I'd always really thought that Stoneheart wouldn't leave the Riverland. She's too thematically tied. But then the more I thought about it, I'm now convinced she will. Lady Gwyn has convinced me. And there's just the connection, the possibility of connections between Catelyn or Stoneheart with John and how she's going to react to him is just, it's really, again, Charlie Dane meme, it's just really filling mm-hmm. my mind. We've guessed about um, maybe she's thinking John is going to be coming for Rickon and she feels the need to protect him or she hears about, it really depends on timing, you can't really guess that part. But in general, I just think the relationship between Callan and John is going to be super important for wins, especially because uh, near the end of Storm when John's considering Winterfell and whether he should take Stannis's offer he has that kind of her face kind of comes up in front of him and there's a lot of imagery about blue eyes and cold lips and like like as if she's dead so there's just mm. there seems to be some really strong connection between them but what I've been thinking about is there's something about this whole sword without a hilt idea that comes strong that obviously John heard first of all and he thinks about again in dance Stoneheart is a product of some kind of magic or higher power we know that but is it a power we should actually have access to. Should Beric be allowed to go around giving it to whoever he likes? Because honestly, everyone really lucked out that it happened to Beric first because he was a really good guy and he used the opportunity to help people. That's true. Catelyn is not doing the same and there's a really good chance that John won't either. And he's the one, like I say, most closely tied to the sword about a hilt quote. But whenever I think of that quote, I think of Catelyn right back at the beginning when she was willing to grasp a blade without access to a hilt in Game of Thrones oh, to defend Bran. So, nice. so that one just won't leave my mind in the brain. That's a really um, good one. I, I've spoken a lot before about how all the Starks are probably going to be on some scale kind of dark, dodgy elements to them, even if they overall deliver something good to the world. I think we, we agree like they're all kind of going down a darkish path. They've got that capacity anyway. I think Stoneheart and John are going to be in the driver's seat for that theme. I think George is going to want to leave this series 
with us arguing still over who is good and bad and what John did at the end, does that make him a villain? What about Stoneheart? He loves writing about the human heart in conflict, but I think he likes creating us to have that same conflict and that same argument. He's going to want to leave that because he's such a forerunner and create this fandom's just different than all the others and that we have all these theories that we've been talking about for so long. I think he wants mm-hmm. to continue that after the series is done as well. Yeah, it may, have been he, it may have been something he set out to do in the first place um, and then realized mm-hmm. that it was working and did it even more. Or not, I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad this came up again because uh, we we didn't really fully cover it yesterday, but we did kind of we did touch on it uh, a little bit. Maybe we just kind of glanced off of it, but we did have somebody ask us a question afterwards, and we don't usually get a chance to answer those questions <laughs> after that like this. So um, the question it was you know why would she want to carry out Rob's wishes or legacy? Since she actually, Catelyn has already pres- disagreed with Rob's yeah. wishes, you know, with this thing of his, his will and naming John his successor. And my answer to that is, is Stoneheart is most motivated by wanting her son back. They, you know, Lem says she wants her son alive. And that's everything about him, I think. She, she wants Rob, including his wishes, what he wanted, his you know, his succession, Every, anything that she can get back that is Rob or that reminds her of Rob will, I think, somehow be precious to her. So if, mm-hmm. you know, if she has that spark of, of sort of reason or humanity left in her, I could definitely see her clinging to that as a memory of, of Rob. Right on. Is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that like the last... Like matter of state they talk about before they get to the twins as well. Yes. Is that like the last thing and they do? Th- so that and the fact that yeah. he's packing her off to the yes. retirement Send after the, the you know, sending yeah. her a sea guard. Yeah. So, you know, and she knows obviously his battle plans as far as what, what he's going to do uh, right directly after the wedding. But yeah. in terms of his plans for his, uh, yeah, for what he wanted for his, for, you know, his realm. You know, that's the last thing she knows. So, and uh, Nina, what about you? Let's hear from you on this one. Great. Topic. Yeah, I I kind of see Stoneheart like I like I said a minute ago. Stoneheart, I feel like is is more of a destructive force than a constructive force, and yeah. she really seems more like a like a nemesis figure, someone someone who is there to to kill and and to to cause death as a result of this sort of gross unjust injustice of the Red Wedding. So, to that extent, I don't really see her in a sort of political context in a sort of, you know, making, making kings or making crowns sort of thing. I, you know, I think that her business is, is mostly to see that vengeance for the red wedding is, is executed. Mm. So once that's sort of completed mm. in whatever form that takes in the winds of winter, I think her story is pretty much done. Okay. Doesn't mean that members of the Brotherhood without banners won't meet up with John. I certainly think someone like a Thoros or a Harwin could, you know, could could turn it around and, and be, you know, ultimately beneficial. But I don't think Stoneheart really is okay. is connected with that. Well let me let me stick with stick with you then for this related question also from Morley. Will Stoneheart Will it affect her at all, or if so, in what way? Finding out that John, if she finds out that John is not uh, the son of Ned, meaning she would retroactively learn what Ned had done and realize that this this lie and this keeping this kid around was to keep him alive, and also it would mean that Ned didn't cheat on her, which is not a huge deal uh, considering she'd seemed to already make her peace with that, but it is relevant. Uh, so yeah, you think that uh, you think this is maybe not going to even happen? Or... Yeah, I don't. 
I don't see it particularly happening. And even if it did, I'm not sure to what extent Stoneheart remembers that that was a conflict. Catelyn, that was a <laughs> conflict. Yeah, maybe not. I'm not sure how much, you know, if you're dead for three days, how much do you remember of, mm. of your former life? How much do you yeah. actually remember of what mattered to you? It mattered to Catelyn. Would it matter to Stoneheart? Again, yeah. I feel like their stories are so separate that it's it's not so much a factor for okay. her anymore. Um, what uh, related to that as well? If if anyone wants to weigh in on her finding out about Rickon slash Bran or mm-hmm. even Arya being alive, if that changes the picture for her. But mostly, uh, I'm curious about this 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 John answer as well. But if you mm-hmm. think it's not even going to happen, that would be a a good alternate question. Uh, Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to try and uh, be careful and not repeat myself too much because we did talk a, bit, a lot about how much of Catelyn remains in Stoneheart. And I'm kind of on the opposition to me. I think it is still quite a lot of Catelyn. For this specific question, I think if we were really being hopeful, we'd want to see Stoneheart slash Catelyn have some kind of admitting she was wrong to treat John that way, even without this information. She should kind of feel bad about it anyway because whether this is true or not, she still shouldn't have been like that to John. That's probably asking far, far too much for that kind of uh, learning at this point. But we did talk about um, her coming back opens up these avenues of possibilities, like you say, finding out if Bran and Rickon are alive or meeting Aya. This would definitely be included, but it's probably quite far down the scale. In terms of just interacting with John, I think we're probably past the idea of Stoneheart coming north and giving the kiss of life to him. It's just not really the timeline and the travel don't really meet up, but I'd still like it if she did because it would make John kiss by fire as he uh, <laughs> was. So that'd be cool. Yeah. I guess you, like yeah. you say here, Mel could maybe, that still might be kissed by fire if Mel does it. Yeah. 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 Lady Gwen, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I do, I want to say that, I, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm with Joe. I think there's a lot more of Catelyn residing in Stoneheart than, um, than is at first obvious. I mean, she's, she's definitely got memories. She remembers her children and her vows, the, the vows made to Jamie and Brienne. That's a while ago. I mean, obviously she remembers the red wedding and what the phrase in the Boltons and all the stuff that happened right at the end of her life. But there are things from her past that she clearly does remember. And, uh, uh, you know, Rob's crown means something to her. So I guess it really comes down to just how much reason and humanity is left in her, I suspect that it is rather more than is at first obvious. Mm. Uh, if it's enough, then that news might matter to her. You know, But if it's not enough, um, it's probably not going to move the needle too much. She might still have a soft spot in there, even despite her revenant bearing. But she's uh, certainly, <laughs> I can't disagree with the far- part that she's definitely about killing. That is, yeah. I think that's true. It might no, just be, there might sure. be a little more to it. Yeah. It definitely comes <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll do that's, something after. But definitely revenge is... We definitely, that's what was first, you know, like the, that last thing that was in her mind when she was mm. killed. That's yeah. obviously, you know, the horror and the, the need to uh, get vengeance, but yeah. she's definitely got, there's stuff deep down that cool. I... Yeah, maybe you come out. Yeah. Well, that's good because I like I, it's. It's good when obviously there's confidence when we all agree on something, but when we don't have when we have different takes, then that's fun too. Because well, we it just makes the whole thing more mysterious. It, it makes it a little harder to settle. So we have uh, more mystery coming. Uh, here's a somewhat related question from Missy's Castle Dreams. She says, "I've been thinking a lot about John slash Barrick slash Stoneheart lately. Is there any way that John could not be a fire white? And the reason she brings that up is." It's different. The, the whole concept of the magic is different if he, if we have some sort of second life in ghosts and then he comes back and he's got 
mm-hmm. skin-changing powers and possibly dragon blood and just these other magical aspects that are that are outside the normal scope of what we've learned about both being a white or some sort of undead being and in general. Like John has got different important qualities that might change. And he she also mentions that Robin Hobb has an influence and there's a character called Fitz in the Farseer series who goes into his wolf and then dies and then goes back to his body. Uh, so that could be an influence. And I'm not familiar with that series, but it does sound similar, at least conceptually. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a tough question because the whole mechanics of fire whitedom is tricky in the first place. But I definitely agree on the surface that not fully understanding what the terms mean, John will be unlike past examples because of the potential for other magic, especially the skin changing. I think it's, um, well, I think firstly, Stoneheart, again, she's going to serve some kind of purpose of letting us know something about how this works or what the cost is or something like that. I think there's got to be a reason that it's Catelyn and John considering their relationship. But for this specific part of John coming back, well, like you say, it's not the same. He has this other element, whether it's that he was in Ghost or whether it's just his walking ability, he's not going to be the same as everyone else. So does that make him worse? Is he going to come back even wilder or more powerful or something like that? I think in the end, it's just it's another aspect of he's the song of Ice and Fire. He's going to have this ice concept of living in, in Ghost, so the stark blood in him, and he's going to be reawakened by fire. So it's just another layer of that uh, kind of duality in him, I think. Hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, definitely think that John's going into Ghost, and uh, I'm familiar with the Fire series here, but I've oh. never, I have read some, I've never read uh, to this part, so okay. that's news to me. Uh, I find that very interesting. I do know that George and Robin are friends, and um, I find that very interesting. And we know he loves to take influence from his friends, so uh, like this, he still eats, drinks, and has children, which would solve <laughs> that eternal question about john and what he's capable of after coming back it sure does it sure does make the lord's kiss look different in retrospect like oh is that the only thing he can do (laughs) maybe there's still hope so i don't know yeah i mean the blood does pool in the extremities so i don't know More of this. Yeah. <laughs> Shea says, what if he just always has an erection? Well, according to Viagra commercials that I've seen, if your erection persists longer than two hours, please call a doctor. You I don't know definitely what, call your physician. Yeah, I don't yeah. know who you call if you're you're an undead being. <laughs> your undead physician? Yeah. Is that yeah. the wall. He's going to be in trouble. There's none left. I guess, you, right. I guess you call Kyburn? <laughs> <laughs> Need a glass candle. This yeah. is going to be a quick call. We can't wait for... Uh, Ravens. You just call eight Q Y B U R N, the Kyburn hotline. Don't worry, we're not tracking your calls. So here's a here's a question from Agnieszka Janika Struska, a feast for crows in Polish. Will you try to read it? She wrote it here on Oh My Uksa uh, Dia Ron. Um, I'll say. Oh, dla. Oh, Uksa dla Ron. Yeah. Okay. Uksa dla Ron. What do you think, Joe? I will not attempt. 
people will come for me with pitchforks. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, I hope we were at least in the ballpark. <laughs> uh, and ballparks are very large, so that gives us a lot of... Yes, hmm. that's right. It could be I was in right field, you were in left field, we're still in the ballpark. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, we were in the parking lot. Damn, we were... Oh, shit. <laughs> From uh, Julie McCausland, I keep wondering if the repeated bird imagery surrounding Sansa is hinting that her work abilities will become stronger. She wonders maybe if in a moment of desperation there's a, a little bit of something or maybe if I could add to her question, I would suggest maybe like a sensitivity, a feeling like a, a sensitivity to dreaming, something like that. Maybe not power, but like a feel or... Because she definitely... Is, there's a lot of this association with... Uh, the north and cold that comes up in, in her chapters in the veil where it makes her feel more at home. And uh, of course, there's the notion here that Julie mentions that Varus and his little birds and Ara uses the cat from Bravos, and this is she gets called little bird. And yeah, hmm. what do you think, uh, Lady Gwen? You've got some notes here. Yeah, I just think that um, little bird is almost certainly a hint at how her warging abilities are going to be used now. I mean, we, we know she still has them. She has the, the dream at Peter Baelish's uh, castle. I don't know if we call it a castle, but <laughs> his, his holding um, that through the eyes of the old dog there. So, you know, it's, it's obvious. And in Georgia said, they're all wargs, but we haven't really seen uh, unlike Aria and, and, and Bran and obviously John, we haven't really seen much of that from her, but I think Little Bird is is this kind of hint. And I think that's just uh, a lovely connection with Bran and Ravens. They're both out there flying around in birds. I would love to see that. And little Bird is an <laughs> awfully specific phrase, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It, it, George is like, you know what? I just have to use that again. I have no other way to describe this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm forced to use the phrase little birds to describe two different things, but they're not connected. No, not at all. But, I mean, they might not be, but what do you think, Joe? Yeah, this, this is a great catch. It's definitely not something I had caught before. It flew over my head, I guess you could say. <laughs> hey. um, but yeah, I guess uh, it does make a lot of sense because we've talked a lot about Sansa remembering her starkness and that always coming through. And I've always just been thinking that in terms of kind of a familial concept. But yeah, it, it, why wouldn't it extend to her walking powers as well? You can say that she can't refine them. Maybe she can never control them because of Lady's death, but they would still be present. We've talked about bloodlines already and blood magic. So I guess that ability hasn't gone anywhere specifically. So yeah, maybe it will uh, turn up. And that would definitely, it would definitely be cool if she can start actually actually doing what kind of Peabayish and Varys joke about being able to do of being having eyes and ears everywhere if you can actually do that oh that would be pretty, pretty yeah cool. <laughs> that would be a real thing to be like a put down for her to deliver to him <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a great call yeah I like the idea I honestly haven't considered it a lot because um, I did I think back to George saying yeah she lost her wolf but that's a sign of of it not developing the way it would with the other she doesn't have this constant conduit to kind of uh, work through, but that doesn't mean the power isn't there. Uh, that the seed doesn't exist. The the receptor, the gene, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So Agniska says that we did a decent job there, but that Uch Uchta is like Uchta, which she gives us an A for being brave. Not you, Joe, though. No A for you. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it in West Country next time. I'll say Feast of Odin in West Country. None of you will be able to understand it. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> Let's see. Here's one. Oh, yeah. So from Jenny C, 
Ariane speaks of several servants, including Hotaz, having come to Doran with her mother. Does that mean they may be more loyal to Ariane than Doran? That's an interesting idea. Never thought about that. Certainly, when we consider people turning on Doran, which we've done, there's obviously a lot of reasons to think about people turning on Doran. I never thought about servants. And of course, what's interesting as a side question is Ario Hota. Not that I think he will turn on Doran. No, that is completely off of the realm of possibility, in my opinion. However, it is interesting that Ario is loyal to Doran when he was brought over by uh, Melario, his wife, who there is now estranged. Yeah, it's pretty much what you just said there. Why has this kind of... Um, why has he basically been transferred who he's employed by? It seems like he was... Uh, we don't know like the however the term is, but sworn to Melario or connected to or whatever, and it seems to have been transferred to Doran. Is that because Melario told him to do that? Is there something else going on? And Doran does specifically have this memory of when he went to meet Melario, and uh, Arya was obviously on the other side. So it seems like it's brought up, but no explanation is given. So I just wonder if if that's going to ever be uh, given to us. I don't think it really makes that big of a difference, because like you said, I don't think he's going to turn on Doran anyway. But it would be very interesting to find out. And I wonder maybe if that's a sign... George wants planned for Malaro to somehow become involved, but even if it's off stage in some way, because Quentin, before he dies, thinks about, oh, I should really go and see her. And maybe she had, was supposed to have some reaction to his death and kind of bring in, because that's one area of the map we haven't been to, like Norvos and Upper Essos. So maybe she was going to be the representative from that area of the world, but I'd be surprised if we still have space for that. But who knows? We're always guessing. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good idea. Yeah, it's interesting to consider. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I just, I mean, I think there's always, when things like that are mentioned, you, you always have to wonder if it could mean something down the line. You know, these you, these servants, so oh, they're they're not Dornish. <laughs> is that told, is it mentioned for a reason, I guess? Uh, mm. I don't think George writes much for no reason. I do get the feeling that Ario is pretty fully loyal to Doran. In fact, Doran over Ariane. I mean, he, you know, he's mm. following all of Doran's orders and, you know, he, thinks of her as his little princess, but he's thinks that she's been making mistakes. So I, I don't think that he's one that's ever going to kind of jump ship, but hmm. we don't know that much about these other people. So that's true. Okay. All right. Well, one, uh, one thing I'm going to do here, I encourage my guests and you all in the chat to speak up if I miss one, but last, last few times we've read who the dead characters were, but this, it's become trickier because a lot of times we learn a character died, but they actually died during the timeline of the previous book. So I'm going to do locations this time because something I think is a... I'm going to push back against something that the Feast for Crows sometimes seems like a book that is narrow in its focus, uh, even because it zooms in more on characters. But really, the world building in this book is quite expansive. And there are a, we cover a huge number of locations in this book. And I think that's something people maybe don't realize unless you sit down and look at it. So let's have a fun little list. Then we'll have our outro from our guests to see what they're up to next. And then we'll call it a day. Crownlands. We got King's Landing at the Sept of Baylor is a big feature. Of course, the Red Keep, as always. Crackclaw Point and the Whispers. That was new entirely. Duskendale. We also get indirectly uh, part of the story. Dragonstone, Stokeworth, and Rosby are all big parts of Cersei's arc. Dragonstone, Loras going there. Stokeworth with the inherit. Uh, sorry, Stokeworth with the whole business with Bronn and Felice and uh, Lollies. Then Rosby, the Rosby inheritance, and Giles Rosby, and all that. 
Uh, in the Riverlands, we have a huge number of locations, Maidenpool, Saltpans, the Quiet Isle, Heron Hall, Castle Dairy, River Run, the Inn at the Crossroads, not to mention micro spots like the Wodes Little Castle, if you can call it that, the Sow's Horn Tower House, wherever they wander. I mean, there's lots of just walking down the road, uh, <laughs> which isn't a specific right. location. The Brotherhood's right. Caves, we don't know where that is exactly, but uh, because they've got several different caves. Um, they've got their summer condo cave and their winter, you know, uh, getaway caves and their <laughs> their upscale caves. Yes, Dorne. We get the water gardens, Sunspear in the Shadow City, Shandy Stone. Uh, lots of other locations mentioned, like Ironwood, High Hermitage, Hellholt, Gaston Gray. These are places that are important that we may never go to. Well, High Hermitage, we probably will, but. I mean, Ironwood, that's a hugely important location. For example, Hellhold is the home of the Ullers. Uh, the Reach, of course, we get some of our only Reach time ever, really. Old Town, the Shield Islands, indirectly. Long, uh, the Arbor is hugely important, even though we don't go there. Also, Brightwater Keep, the Florence Seat, and Long Table, which is the seat of the Merryweathers. Uh, on the Iron Islands, of course, we have Old Wick, Pike, and Ten Towers and discussion of other houses there. The Vale, same thing. Nearly all the important houses get mentioned. Several representatives show up. We get the Erie and the Gates of the Moon specifically. Of course, we get a minute at the wall. We do get the wall technically in this book. Not much of it. And we get Bravos. Lots of Bravos. I mean, we get a ton of Bravos. Aria literally goes all over town. <laughs> I mean, that's like her job to get to know the place. And so we do as well. well even though the Stormlands and the North aren't really in the book, they come up to... Not a lot, including Moat Kalen. Also the Summer Isles. We don't go there, but of course, Sam, we learn a lot about their culture. So that is a lot of locations. And I probably forgot a few. Anything that, you, that I definitely forgot that you guys noticed there? Or... Mm-hmm. I guess not. I think okay. so. Cool. Yep. I'm sure the no. twins is mentioned. I didn't mention that, but they didn't, you know, it doesn't show yeah. up directly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, some other, you know, uh, what do you call it? The you know, Hagsmire and, yeah, and good point. Uh, the neck is mentioned, yeah. uh, which brings to mind, uh, you know, Holland Reed. And, yeah, so. that's true. That's true. And of course, I guess technically Norvos was mentioned too. Not really, not super important, but hey, mm-hmm. got so, it. Um, <laughs> Billy go past, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the seat of House Castain, don't they? Just on the corner oh, going yeah. into the... Um, three the Towers. Whispering Town. Three yes, towers. I knew there was something yeah, Towers. Nice. Good call. We're talking about Tower. I guess those three are coming down too. Do they have Do they have mm-hmm. burning tips? I wonder. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> 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 By the way, uh, you gave me a mashup idea earlier for a costume, uh, Joe, when you were talking about Charlie Day. It's like Charlie Dane, right? You got to have Charlie <laughs> Kelly mashed up with Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning wood. I don't know. What do we, what do we call <laughs> Sword of the day, man. Yeah, we'll have to think about that more. <laughs> sword of the day, man. Oh my God. <laughs> this is pretty good. There's some, there's some fertile ground right here. <laughs> I am, I am the sword of the, uh, I am of the night. I don't know. You could, you know there's, there's something in there. <laughs> Fighter of the dark star. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon Winslow says, I didn't hear Heron Hall. I thought I said Heron Hall, but I might've skipped it. But definitely we went to Heron Hall. Yes, Heron Hall was important. Jamie hates this place. Oh no, I didn't. I think I have it on the list, but I might've skipped it. Anyway, yeah. very important, no doubt. Um, Leah Rubenfeld says little bird equals tattletale. She's going to be the one to, to make John's secret public after Ned worked so hard to keep it. That is what happened on the show. I, I can't say it's impossible or even really speak against it in the books. Really, I just don't know. That, it seems like it's entirely possible. You guys have a take on that? I never considered that. Hmm. I guess it makes sense in she was the secret revealer 
about Ned in the first place. So, you know, oh, maybe she makes up for that yeah. reading it about John. That's true. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I could see yeah. that for sure. And it looks like one last question snuck in here from Magnum Mater 2. It never braced me before. Sansa has red hairs. Her grandma is a went and might inherit the witch stronghold of Harrenhal if she gets rid of her dad, Peter. Um, dot, dot, dot. Ellipsis. And then as Shay adds, there's also this quote reminiscent of the went bat. She changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. Yeah. Another tower. Hmm. Yeah. Tower. Uh, <laughs> she didn't want, she had to get out of there. The tip was burning. Uh, the, yeah. So that is very much speaking to her ancestry. Changed into a wolf, which is her Stark heritage. Big leather wings like a bat. That's her went heritage. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, the witch, yeah. The witch queen of Harrenhal business with Alice Rivers and, and Dance with the Dragons. That's an interesting uh, crossover. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have mm-hmm. to think about that one more. Nothing jumps out at me, but it bears more... Mm-hmm. Uh, consideration because that's a good point. She does have that connection. She's the only one that, that's come up with. Like, obviously, all the Starks have that heritage. They all have that mm-hmm. one heritage. But Sans is the one that this quote happens, the one that it's, it's referred to. And, mm-hmm. and she's the one associated with Littlefinger, too. So, and the, who is technically the lord of it. Mm-hmm. Good call. Hmm. Oh, and Asheus is also a little bird. Like a bat is kind of like a little bird. Yeah. And that's, in I think context. actually, in that, I think uh, Sandra Clegane actually, it, Right when that quote is told, is it's told to them at the in at the crossroads, and uh, he actually says, "Oh, so the little bird flew away." Oh <laughs> yeah, that's right. When uh, <laughs> and there she's and they laugh and they're like, "What's up?" And he's like, "If I wanted you to know, I'd tell you." Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> really up. good. Good point. Very good. Cool. Okay, I think that does it, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much to my guests. Uh, again, I'll repeat, since uh, Nina had to leave a little early, check her out at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com and she'll be back f- to add her thoughts for our Dance of Dragons read-through when we get that started in a few weeks. Lady Gwyn, what is up in the near future for Radio Westeros and anything else you want to plug, please do. Lord, a lot. Good. <laughs> well, that's on. a great start. <laughs> that's what we like to hear. Um, so we have doing our Winds of Winter Primer series and the next regular episode of that is actually coming out soon. The patron rollout starts tomorrow. And that's an episode all about Cersei and King's Landing. So if I talked a lot about Cersei and seemed like I was really more focused on her, that's because that's where my head has been Makes for a sense. couple of weeks. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, so there's that. And we've been doing our, our live streams. Uh, we have live stream about Cersei coming up in uh, actually two weeks from today. We're taking your time slot because we are going to have Mikhail Schick on with us and she can't join us on the Saturday that's slot right. that we usually do. Uh, so we've got her coming on to talk about Cersei. And then um, we'll be working on our uh, next installment of Dance the Dragons. Hell soon. yeah. That's right. We yeah. sure will. Yeah. Part three that are of our co-project there, our collab, where the, this interim time between A Dance with Dragons and A Feast for Crows is going to be one of my fo- foci, but also other episodes as well. <laughs> and Joe Buckley, what is up for you? Are you you're going to be taking off a few weeks as well from Valeritas, but that doesn't mean you're not doing other things, or are you? Well, I would like a break, yes, but unfortunately not available to me. Um, yeah, well, I'll firstly say thank you for having me back, of course, and to Lady Gwen for having me yesterday. Then I'll apologize for my... Free calumnies earlier um, for making all those mistakes. <laughs> in terms of coming up, well, like you said earlier, I was lucky enough to um, talk about Lady Stoneheart and Radio Westbrook yesterday. That was a lot of fun. 
But coming up, uh, using this break to finally deliver my very patient patrons uh, my reading of the Storm's End chapter from my Castles book, which I promised a long time ago, and the feast distracted me. So that'll be coming up either this week or next week. And I also will be doing a kind of, I'm going to try and make a little video of a kind of walking tour of Winterfell because I was gifted for my birthday one of these 3D kind of folded paper models of Winterfell. If my camera was working, I would show you because it's next to me. Uh, you can have a look at Radio <laughs> Westeros. They got a glimpse of it yesterday. Yeah. So I'm going to have a little look around the Winterfell there and compare it to the books and what we see in the show and stuff like that. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah, I think that reading, that's a really good idea. Reading from your own book and all that's really good. Um, Not my idea. No idea. I, don't, I wouldn't want to listen to it, but apparently patrons do. So we have a, a question about recording dates for Minge Forever. I done a, put up a, a poll on Patreon about changing the way we did the recordings for Valoridus, but the vote was to keep it the same. So that's, that's why I didn't bother to bring it up because we're not doing anything terribly different. Uh, we thought about splitting it in half and doing half of each week on a Monday and the other half on a Wednesday. But it was a close vote, but the vote was to keep it the same. So we'll keep it all on Sunday and going forward. We may do, uh, we may reduce the number of chapters in some weeks to avoid the monster episodes that happen every once in a while. We, we, we don't really want it to be over three hours. But if it has to be, it will be. We're not going to cut short just for that reason. It's, it's more important to get everything in there than it is to keep it short. But better to, to have both. We can be more lengthy if we do more episodes. And since Winds of Winter is not super imminent, we can take a little bit more time with that. So that will be the plan. Okay, so I also want to give some thanks to other folks. Of course, I want to thank our awesome History of Westeros mods that uh, make our Facebook group great. That would be Jennifer, Rebecca, Laura, Scott, Tommy, and Ari. You guys are fantastic, and I love y'all. I uh, hope to get to see you all soon as well in at some sort of convention or event in the future. And big thanks to our com- contributors over at Flick. There's a lot of regulars who have been with us for a while making comments on every single week's episodes, chapters, and that has been invaluable because you guys not only add things to the discussion, but you very often turn up things that some or none of us have considered. That's extremely invaluable. Also, thanks to people who are have been joining our newer but burgeoning Discord and Slack communities. Lots of different options for where you can discuss History of Westeros. Make sure you go check out Here Be Dragons after this. Today, they are discussing Hero's Journey arcs. And that's a cool topic. That's a great literary uh, overall big macro topic that is, uh, of course touches on so many different stories. I wonder how they're going to approach this topic because talk about a big one. <laughs> that is a big one. So it's time for some patron shout outs and I will see you guys all in a few weeks. We don't have our Dance with Dragons schedule yet because I didn't. I wanted to make sure we finished all these side projects. Well, they're not side projects. They're other projects. These other projects first. And I don't know how long that's going to take. So I don't want to commit yet, but it's going to be before October. So it'll probably be mid to late September, but not so not too long. And in the meantime, we'll have other episodes. And of course, you can always be checking out all the other great fandom community podcasts and YouTube shows, especially Radio Westeros and Isle of Faces. So let's say our thanks to the patrons and thanks to Ashea for being so awesome over there. She wasn't on mic today, but had to deal with the usual uh, technical problems. This time it was more of a cat-related issue, but hey. <laughs> Xerxes is, uh, is to blame today. Thanks to the mysterious BR, our hand to the king. 
Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, and of, the queen, and of Queen Shea, who is known as the best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the West. I'm sorry, East. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light is Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister is the Bloodline, Ruler of Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet by led by the flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. He doesn't understand this whole feast for crows business being a seaman. You know, they, they, it's a feast for sharks. That's what they say in, in naval lingo. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a da dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Floss. As a King Beyond the Wall, he, on the other hand, is very familiar with feasts for crows, having created a few himself. Our White Walker patrons include Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes, and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood is first of the First Men, new, now crowned in ice, called Silencebringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword, Pale Frost. Our small council includes Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Laura Boros, the Lady, Infinite, Lady of Infinity, Master of Coin, and Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers. Looks like we got a couple of spots open if anyone's interested. Lord and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty is still Lord of the Bread Fort, the most delicious of all the castles. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise. Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Bond Oban. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolf's Wood is First Forester of the Old Gods, Sworn to House Ironwerewood. Listen for the silence. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane is the Star Spear, and congrats to y'all of House Dillsdane for baby Dillsdane on the way. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Blood Raven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Lady Mora of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features werewood doors with painted moons. Thanks for the question today, by the way, Mora. Charlie One One of the of the Desert Stormborn, the Strait, and the Stalwart is Lord of Castle Bradley, Guardian of the Giant Stair, Defender of the Skirling Pass, Keeper of the High Ground, Wielder of the Werewood Staff, Concussion. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council includes Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are Court's Crystal, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Pen, Fire and Ink. Lady Tracy the Ascendant, ruler of the Cloud Keep, is Master of Laws. And the Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, is Master of Whisperers. Our King's Guard includes Lord Commander Namian of House Darklin, the Night Slayer. Valyrian's sword is called Onyx Abyss. He's backed by Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Sir uh, Gregor Snow, called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. Vaughn of House Furster. Sigil is a mailed fist with an extended forefinger and pinky on a light blue field. Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman, the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark, Gunslinger Knight of the Winter Kings, back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect his King Aziz. Well, thanks. And our Queen's Guard, protecting Ashea. Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmuth, sellsword sentinel at the top. 
backed by Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids, the Winty Wintry Wolverine, his motto is We Finish What You Begin, Nora Neko, and Archmaester Vena, whose ring and rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding. Our beard guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Hi, Rita. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, is a wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red, and brown. Stay frosty, my friends. Last but not least is our official... Uh, oh, my goodness. I see what you did here, Shay. I forgot about this. <laughs> On our webpage, Shea changed the followers of the seven to... The Radio Westeros Dancers. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered who those people are. Well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't planning to read them, but what the heck? Because <laughs> this name is so cool. Okay, so the Radio Westeros Dancers include <laughs> Direwolf of the Rainwood, Mallory Sand, Witch of the Storm, Wolf Rider of Zulfrich, the Black Beast. That's Sandrixian, by the way. Yep. Yeah. Sir Aaron of Black also. Tide. What's that? Right behind my head, too, that oh, picture. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we also have Sir Aaron of Black Tide, Knight of the Jade Wave. Scott Alexander, the Prince of Dragonflies. He does dance. <laughs> he does dance. That's true. Scott does dance. <laughs> like a dragonfly. <laughs> and Lord Brock of House Black Tree, the Badger King. Bailey Bloodaxe, the Warrior's Chosen. Flavored Annie of Stony <laughs> Sept, a.k.a. I said flavored. Oh, my God. Favored. I'm sorry. Favored Annie of Stony Sept, a.k.a. Annie the Graceful. Flavored Annie is a pretty good or name, Annie though. Tasteful. <laughs> tasteful. Very tasteful. That's pretty good. And Source Sir Delica, of, or Sir Source Delica of House Gramercy. <laughs> We're having some comedy in the outro today. Uh, and finally, members of the History of Westeros Night's Watch. That's led by Lord Commander Richard Beligerhart, wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes. Motto, go blue. And he's backed up by First Builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. First Ranger Liam, a.k.a. Sir, waiting on a nickname. And First Steward, Sir Jurian of the Torrentine called... Hailwind. And that's it, everybody. Thanks again to my to our guests. Thanks again to Ashea. Thanks again to Michael Klarfeld and Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval and our Benjineer and all of you fine folks out there who have been with us through another book in Valar Reredus. Stay tuned for more and please tune in to Radio Westeros in general, but also during the interim while we are working on our other projects and of course check out joe and nina's stuff as well please till next time everybody valar re read us <laughs> <laughs>